studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, they could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me to make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and today is the very last day, at least for the foreseeable future, today's the last day that I'm going to be doing the Big Big Book Report. And really, the reason for that is because there really are no more big books for, for me to talk about, or at least there are no more big books in which I am interested to to talk about. And so because of that, beginning in the next seventh episode that I do, the subject is going to be basically up for grabs. You know, I'm going to have a basic idea, like the kernel of an idea for a general subject to start the conversation, after which the conversation fucking, it just goes where it goes. So... And as it happens, there are, believe me, no shortage of ideas and things to talk about. But that's in the future. In the here and now, what I'm going to be talking about today is what I guess you might call, this is going to be the big book of leftovers. Basically things that were interesting and captivating and and good ideas in their own right. But it's just the format that I chose for the big book report requires that basically that sacrifices be made and so you can't necessarily talk about every single little thing that might be interesting to you you kind of have to pick your moment a little bit more and so that's really i guess the operating philosophy of this episode what i've done is i've gone through all of the big books and then picked out two stories that i want to talk about and we're going to be talking about them but As always, I am not alone. No, no. 
Once again, I'm being joined by Two True Freaks co-host and co-founder and professional dumpster diver, Mr. Chris Honeywell. How are you, sir? You are not alone. <laughs> you are here with me. It's a little bit. It's, it also reminds me of the tagline when Close Encounters was coming out. The We Are Not Alone was all the posters. It was just the picture of the road, Devil's Tower, and the words, We Are Not Alone. Uh, you know, I think I royally set Scott Gardner off the deep end. Uh, this was this was years and years ago, but I posted on Facebook. I said I was going through this phase where I wanted to watch all of these movies that I probably should have watched a long time ago, but just friggin' never did. And the movie that day was Close Encounters, right? And I put up this little Facebook update. Yeah, hey, I'm I'm watching Close Encounters, and and I've never seen it before. And so Gardner, you know, replied. He's like, Oh, well, that's you know pretty cool. You know, hope you have fun, enjoy the show, and everything. And it's it. it was part of the way through the movie when it's like the basic tone and I guess direction of this movie has been pretty well established. And I guess what I, what I wanted this movie to be and what it in fact was, these are two different things. What I wanted was something more like war of the worlds. And what I got was, well, close encounters. Yeah. A lot of close encounters, the effect of close encounters and the movie, and it's funny, the, the first time I saw Close Encounters, um, but before, um, I saw the, before I saw the movie, I went into the theater early and caught the end of, um, uh, The China Syndrome. Yep. And they were both movies of their time, like, Close Encounters came out like not really in the middle of a big UFOs were starting to to become a sort of pop culture thing and there was interest in them but it wasn't as ingrained into our brains as it was was as it is now you know with like the whole mythos of aliens alien abduction it was all that story he was sort of basing it on like Barney and Betty Hill and the the few stories that they had then so all anybody knew at that point was like War of the Worlds alien invasion movies and I think Spielberg wanted to do the most like I want to do this as a reality of now with with aliens and so the movie sort of sets a template that's the basis especially with like the look of the aliens and stuff which he got from reports and stuff, but he sort of you know winnowed them together into that alien look, and uh, I think so. Now when you watch it, it just seems very simple and just sort of um, um, not naive, but you know just sort of wide-eyed, you know, sort A of little sort innocent. Of thing. Yeah, and <clears throat> and it, and you know, but when it came out, there was you know nobody had ever approached aliens and and spaceships and that sort of i don't want to say documentary fashion but you know sort of semi-realistic fashion before so it was it was it had a different feel to it then in the context of when it came out well my follow-up comment is really what did it you know i posted a reply saying you know i don't know if this movie is really for me i said this movie's okay but i don't know if it's for me and his reply was this, I mean, the disdain is practically dripping off of this thing. He's like, it's 
just okay. <laughs> and <clears throat> so I, I, I just made a mental note. Okay, uh, just don't don't talk about Close Encounters with with Scott. Okay. <laughs> it's, but Close Encounter, it's different than say watching like Jaws, you know, for for an early Spielberg movie because Jaws. You know, there's, te- you know, people are using regular phones on it and don't have cell phones, but it's almost universal in its sort of the way the story is told. It's a, you know, it's a seafaring, you know, chase. But, you know, it, it there's, it, it wasn't in, doesn't have the charge to it that, that Close Encounters does from that time period. So when, when the old duffers like Scott and I watch it, you know, you get a little bit of that feeling of when you were watching it the first time and, and it was kind of mind-blowing, you know. Mm. Not as mind-blowing to Scott and I because we'd been reading all the UFO magazines and stuff like that. So we were probably like maybe even a little more up on it. Than, oh, yeah, you guys would have been Spielberg, primed. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah, we were, you know, I, I, you know, I already knew who J. Allen Hynek was and was, you know, basically Probably could pick him out of a police lineup, too. I don't, I, my dad was so cool that he actually J. Allen Hynek spoke at our, our local community college and he took me to took me to see him. And, uh, you, you know, I mean, that was I mean, that was in the days I, I wouldn't have figured out that J. Allen Hynek was. And my dad's like. Hey, you know who J. Allen Hynek? Do I know who J. Allen Hynek is? Blah blah blah. Well, he's speaking at the college tonight. We're gonna go see him, and it was just like, whoa, 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 what? And he had a whole slideshow and everything. So I got to see him like pretty, pretty close to when he died. That's pretty awesome, dude. It, it was. I I wish I had. I wish I had more of a memory of it. You know what I mean? I just mm. have. I I have a very selective memory of the slide. I have the same amount of memory as I did when my grandparents took me to see the Audubon photographer at the college. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the slide bits of the slideshow and that's about it. You know, mm. I was definitely paying more attention for JL and Heineck. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, who can blame you? But well, as it goes for uh, today, the mission statement is actually, we've got sort of two missions going on here. Like I said a while ago, uh, we're going to be you and I are both going to be talking about really four stories, basically two, uh, you know, a, two stories, e- each of us from previous big books that we kind of had to skip in the past. And then in the second segment, we're going to be joined by Scott Rifen of Dinner for Geeks fame so that he can talk at length about the big book of urban legends. And there's a reason for all of this. I'll explain it in the next segment. But there's there's a method to the madness, I promise. But. As it goes for this segment, uh, Chris, I believe I went first last time, so that would mean that you get to go first this time. Yes, and let's see. I'm trying to decide which one I'm going to go first on because one of mine, one of mine, I wouldn't say leads into yours as much as as it just mushes into it. <laughs> Someone, <laughs> so yeah. it could go on either end, but um. Yeah, my first one that I picked was uh, Joe McCarthy's List. And uh, I think we might have talked about that a little bit in the, the hoax books. It might have been one of my, um, um, you know, um, runners-up at the end. But uh, I just love – I don't love, but I, I, I really am 
enthralled by the whole arc of Joe McCarthy and the Joe McCarthy's that came before him and the Joe McCarthy's who came after him. But he's sort of like the prototype of that person who, who sort of makes a political career out of out of attacking people. And it's kind of like uh, I want to say a trashy way of doing it. It's a kind of a trashy approach and it's kind of so obviously always ends in, in, in bitter defeat. And, you know, it's one of those trajectories where if you choose to be Joe McCarthy and be like, I've got a list of communists that you never, and, and you pursue it and you use that as your, your, your claim to fame, it almost always ends up in just, there's always one time period where the worm turns and once the worm turns on you, that's it. You're down, you're down the shitter. And that's pretty much what happened to, to Joe McCarthy. And he, he had the like drinking on top of it. He was a notorious drinker. So that, so that just like fueled him all the way through and then fueled him to the end. And it's like, um, this one also ties into another one of uh, one of yours where it's like somebody comes up with something that may or may not have base well the one you you picked has no basis in reality but something that has a tenuous base in reality and they use that to, for their their gain and it ends up having really horrible effects on innocent people you know mm -hmm. in the case of the story you picked it's it's deaths in joe mccarthy's case it's probably deaths or or deaths that came sooner or through suicide or whatever but he ruined a lot of people's careers you know for you know just for the rest of their lives with almost no basis in reality well the uh our and of course now I'm blanking on it, but I remember seeing a $100,000 reward that was put out by a some conservative uh, book publisher that said, if you can find one person that Joe McCarthy falsely accused, we'll give you $100,000. And as far as I know, to date, that reward has never been claimed. Right, but it depends on what your, your um, definition of falsely accused is. It could be, you know, Joe McCarthy would be like, this person went to a meeting of, you know, the Communist Party at this time period. But in the context of those days, that was something like going to a libertarian party or something. People were checking out stuff. And there, and there, there was even a kind of Hollywood trendiness to it. Now, the number of those people that went to one of those meetings and became a hardcore communist or even a softcore communist was probably pretty low and you know and it, it if, if you're doing guilt by association but you know i mean but is the criteria do you have to find their membership card to the communist party you know or do you need to get a recording of them going yes you know comrade i'm secretly working with it you know it's it's one of those things where it's hard to prove it it just depends on what people are considering their burden of proof either way, whether for or against somebody. And and if you really want to, you could probably prove anybody either way. So I'd have to read what the, the qualifications of proving 
whether whether McCarthy was was wrong or not. The the thing was, if there was a communist conspiracy in the the government, it sure took its it's still taking its time <laughs> to 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 manifest itself and to take over. You know, that's the sort of thing. And, and if there were a few hail hydras in the in the government at that time, you know, sort of good luck to them. You know, I don't think they would. Uh, I, I just don't think you're gonna. You have to sell the American public on like living like communist China. You can't force if you know you would have to force them to do it, and that would be such a logistical gulag like nightmare that uh, you know. I just I I I just don't think his his logic played out, and I don't think if he was right that that he was the right guy <laughs> at that time to expose a communist conspiracy he didn't he didn't seem to do a good job or maybe he i i don't even know if that was his plan you know as much as just to as a power grab or a or a publicity grab or whatever to further his his career but there's you know he's just sort of the prototype it happens all the time you got I mean, you got right right now. The thing about Joe McCarthy is Joe McCarthy was Joe McCarthy. Nowadays, you can go all over the left and the right and find handfuls of Joe Joe McCarthy's. It's like the whole country is a battling, <laughs> battling, the civil war battleground of of Joe McCarthy's right now of different kinds. You know, all with their different. I'm just loving this year. This year is the year of the conspiracy theory. Every old conspiracy theory is getting dragged out. New ones are piling up, and every every news cycle brings brings out more. <laughs> well, the uh, what I'll say that's interesting for this year, at least so far, is the fact that you know you really can't avoid like the racial component of of stuff which is weird to think about because you would think that if anything the 2008 election would have been a lot more racially charged than this one and you'd be wrong it was well it wasn't as much there was some racial charge in that i mean the the barack obama versus hillary clinton was way more brutal than Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton in the primaries. I mean, you know, the I mean, there were people getting all wound up in the rhetoric of this year, but man, when I mean, Hillary Clinton said a few you know, racially charged things about Barack Obama back in 2008, you know, and she was like, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm hanging on till the till the convention because Hey, you know, I mean, he. Uh, she put it in a couched phrase of like, well, you know what happened to Robert Kennedy oh, or boy. something, you, you know, like that. But, you know, yeah, she was basically saying, hey, I'm hanging in until the convention. I'm not dropping out till the convention because somebody might shoot this guy. You know, you know what I'm saying? You know, so there was stuff like that going on in in 2008. And it's just a it's just a component in our country, and it's going to become more and more of a component as the racial demographics change. And the thing is, I've been hearing I've been ever since I was a little kid, I've been hearing people talk about how you know in forty years, you know the the 
countries, go, you know, the, in, I, I, what was it, 50 or 60 years when I was a kid, they were saying, yeah, well, you know, white people will probably be, it, it will, will, in 40 years, not the majority, and 50 to 60 years, possibly a minority. And, you know, now we're hitting that about 40 year mark in that time. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's, they were about right. You know, that the statisticians were pretty, pretty good with their, their estimates of population growth and, and immigration and all that. They you know, the trends of it and stuff. So there's a tension created with that. You know, it's a, the, the tension of change and change is happening faster. I mean, with 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 population growing that that speeds it up with technology growing that speeds it up so you're getting a lot of tension between you know you don't there's not as much time to adjust to change these days it just piles up on top of each of of itself and the the older and more set people are the more that's going to grind at them. Mm. Hmm. I love it. My, I personally, I, I, I enjoy it to, to some degree. <laughs> I'm able to walk away when I start getting too, you know, pessimistic about the, the, you know, there's, I don't know, just paying attention just makes it a constant. It's like New York city when you're battling, whether you're looking at, the the greatest crazy person you've ever seen or the most beautiful supermodel you've ever seen walking down the street it's sort of the same thing where like you know you can get the most pessimistic thoughts about the future by looking at what's going on now and the most optimistic thoughts too you know there's the you know when i can actually look in science magazines and they're going you know we might actually there might be something to this warp drive thing (laughs) that you know so I think that's I think that's the eternal human condition. Well, do you have uh, anything else for uh, Joe McCarthy? Uh, Joe McCarthy? <laughs> no, not really. Um, um, so my my Joe McCarthy's fitting into one. My other ones in the big book of conspiracy. Oh boy! And I think I'm only like. Um, and that's uh, Jonestown. This is a huge story, and I mean that literally. This is several pages, and yeah, yeah. it's long. So this—I mean, you know—just to kind of give like an introduction on this, because I know we're going to get in the blood and guts of the conspiracy angle. But like, the official story for Jonestown is, or at least was, that he was this wacko cult leader who basically moved his business of operations to. Uh, South America, built a temple, and then he somehow talked hundreds of people into committing suicide by drinking poisoned Kool-Aid. This is the official story. Now, what is the conspiracy theory for this? What isn't the conspiracy theory for this? This is one <laughs> of the reasons I picked this one, because this one just glops. This one, this one is still getting... I mean, I was just having... Um, a conversation with or people where the, where Jonestown came up in the context of the Orlando shootings, and somebody was making the argument, you know, okay, you know, you could kill people, you could have electrocuted all those people in that club. That they're, they're like, you don't need guns 
to kill a lot of people. Look at look at Jonestown. There's almost a thousand people dead there, and that was because of poison Kool Aid, and that's where. And I was just popcorning on this conversation as we were talking about about gun conversations before. They're almost better to just sort of watch, and and my opinions usually don't fit into into the conversation anyway. But this one, I just had to chime in because I was just like, yeah, I don't think they would have been able to give that many people the poison if they did not have, you know, the evidence is there that pretty much a good amount of those people did not just go like, oh, Kool-Aid, Jim Jones, okay, we'll do it. They were heavily brainwashed and at gunpoint. And some people didn't drink the Kool-Aid and they got shot. You know, so a lot of people didn't drink the Kool-Aid and got shot or drank the Kool-Aid and got shot or tried to not drink the Kool-Aid and got shot or or drank the Kool-Aid because there were there were people with rifles all around them. So hell with it. Just shoot me. I'm not drinking that shit. I mean, that's a terrible way to die. Like, oh, yeah. Cyanide. I'd take a bullet in the head over writhing on the ground for an hour in in excruciating pain. Yes, easily. Easily, I, I especially in those conditions, I would be like, take me out of Guyana <laughs> and Jim Jones brainwashing. But as far as conspiracies go, this covers everything, and you could trace. And, and a lot of the conspiracies that are coming out of this are getting pulled out this year uh, in the Orlando shooting. Every time there's a mass shooting where you have a crazy, a mentally ill person, or maybe even not. Just just about every kind of mass shooting that makes the the TV that isn't like, you know, say like the um, Hell's Angels that had the. Everybody knows why those Hell's Angels had their gunfight. It was a Hell's Angels gunfight or something. But somebody who goes out hunting humans, and and pulls out a lot of people. All you have to do is go to start your trip is go to Alex Jones and then you can go in any direction to the internet where all of this is a false flag or this was a mind controlled CIA drone who was trained at this facility and stuff. All that can be traced to the same companies and, and people right back to Jonestown and before Jonestown too. But like, Jonestown's like one of the ultimate like mind control conspiracy um, breeding grounds of all time. You know, you had Jim Jones who had, you know, tenuous CIA ties. You know, you could there were a few things that that said that perhaps he had ties to the CIA, worked for them, or had connections in, and uh, he was definitely very good at at controlling people and getting he was a charismatic um arguably left wing in the beginning arguably like a civil rights guy in the beginning of his his climb to to fame he he would start his churches you know in the ghetto and you know 90 percent of his congregation would be poor black inner city people and as a matter of fact, a good chunk of Jonestown was that he was he was very he was very he would r- run the narrative that, you know, that the, the you know, the white man is trying to to wipe out the black men and still enslave them. And and that rhetoric, too. But at the same time, he was sort of John Bircher 
which is all very common in conspiracy theory land. You can't pin down people to any kind of um, political stand or anything. They seem to just, you know, run the gamut so you could almost attribute them to anything. And so, you know, uh, uh, there's a lot of belief that the whole People's Temple thing was just an an experiment in mind control. Um, Possibly, who knows what was going on there, but, you know, the the story is, is when when it got investigated, Mm -hmm. they uncovered something, and that's when, um, was he a a senator? Oh, yeah. Uh, A guy from uh, uh, it was like four people from the State Department and a senator came down to check it out. And nobody knows what they found because they got shot getting back onto the plane to leave. And uh, and that triggered the 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 mass um, suicide, possibly suicide, possibly mass murder. You know, you, you could call it what you want. A lot of people ran into the woods, and, uh, and there's evidence that a lot of people ran away and were killed, and then brought back, and then just piled on top of the other people. There, there's there were a lot of the the more militarized end of it. You know, the enforcers there. A lot of those guys aren't. Nobody knows what happened to them, and they have tenuous government ties, but. When you're dealing in the world of weirdness and stuff, of course these people have weird mercenary, you know, what kind the kind of people that are going to get involved in this usually have probably gotten involved in a lot of sketchy things. So you just have this brew of of weirdness and sort of that that sleazy huckstery sleaziness mixing together. So you could almost draw any kind of conspiracy out of this, but the big one that always comes out of this is the, the sort of MK Ultra mind control. Yes. You know, you mind control people to do do stuff. So so nowadays, there's just it's become it's become sort of pop culture now in some ways. I mean, we uh, back in the '90s, I think it really started with the with the Mel Gibson conspiracy theory movie. Yes, and. Um, you know, and and him reading, um, you know, they tied in um, Catcher in the Rye, you yeah. know, and and all that, and um, I mean to this day, I mean that that you can go and 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 read about how the Orlando shooter, you know, worked for this company for a time period, and they're known to have connections to this company, which this shooter worked for, you know. So basically, the the theory now that. The conspiracy theory that sprung out of this is the two sort of competing ones are you have are the 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 one on the super crazy side is like the super soldier theory, mm-hmm. and then you have the Manchurian candidate theory of where you have people who usually their parents were military or radicalized in some way and and then have. And this this is just like where it gets it, you know, the the assumption is that there's parents who are just like, oh, yeah, I have a kid. Yeah, here, I'll give it my kid to the military so that they can train them to to be a mass shooter someday, you know. Right. But that's that's usually the narrative that's that's being portrayed is, 
you know, this kid went to either a military school or he got training or was in the army. Timothy McVeigh was in this one camp that's, you know, a bunch of other people had been at and, and then they train you to, you know, do this and then your code word comes up and all of a sudden you're, you're traveling. You've been activated, yeah. Yeah, you're activated and you're traveling around D.C. and just randomly picking people off till they put out someone says ducks in a noose and then you deactivate and or or the police shoot you even better. And then your narrative is finished (laughs) at that point. You know, you're a dead end. So, I mean, that that conspiracy theory is running strong these days. It's just you can't get away from it. And. And almost inevitably you're going to hear you know people's temple come up and uh you know these these books are 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 very well researched in one way but they're also a little deceptive in another way whereas they just throw the stuff out there they don't sometimes they'll say like ah you know this is a little tenuous but there's this and this but for the most part they will play it up for drama a little bit and take something that's that's hearsay and just sort of say well you know when they found the bodies this and this was was wrong with it there there isn't they they, they don't really go through and um show show their work that much they're 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 not made to do that they're they're made to sort of be a jumping off point but at the same time they're still a very melodramatic um jumping off point so so what i guess i'm saying is by the time you're done with the end of the people's temple cartoon you know you're pretty much convinced that there was something messed up going on there which there was there had to have been yeah for hundreds of people to die something weird had to happen it's a matter of what right but as, as far as it being a government conspiracy and mind control yeah you know it could have been at some point there, there could have been some sort of thing in there, but you know, as that could have just been one little aspect in the stew that people are are running with. And I've read a few other books, you know, by people who were there and people who were in the People's Temple and knew Jim Jones and their their sort of story from within, which are of course skewed in their own way. But you know, a, a, a lot of the story, a lot of these stories can just be chalked up to human human frailties and mental illness i mean jim jones was also he was a charismatic he was building his power and he was also taking speed pills to to keep up with it in the early days and then he became basically (laughs) you know he, he was on crystal meth like a lot of the nazis were right so you have so then all of a sudden you might have things that seem weird because the people who are reading about them aren't aren't tweakers <laughs> yeah pretty much <laughs> you know jim jones was a tweaker he could have been coming up with all kinds of stuff off the top of his head and you know he could i'm sure he was saying all sorts of stuff like in the government this and the government that and it might have had something to do with stuff he knew in the past and stuff like that. But, you know, a lot of this can be chalked up to one charismatic guy on a lot of drugs <laughs> and things things get out of hand. And then afterwards, you have a lot of time for people to try to make some sense out of it. 
right. which it might be a completely nonsensical thing. There might not be a logic to what transpired there. So I, it's just a fascinating and horrifying story. And it's always one that's that that's really affects me because I remember when it happened when I was a kid. I remember, you know, hearing about it on the news, and it was, in you know, one of those when now now I just sloth it off because I'm an adult. But when I was a kid, you'd hear someone on the news say, "Well, the following images could be very shocking," you know. So we're warning you. So I was actually one of those people that they were warning because my parents would be like, oh, "But but during the news, they'd be like, all right, well, it's the news." So, and then they showed you know just the helicopter shot of all the bodies, and then Time Magazine came in. And that was the cover of it was just piles of bloated bodies. And uh, I'd never seen anything like that, especially in like color, modern. I've seen pictures of the Holocaust and stuff like that. But there's always that separation of them being black and white pictures. And this took place 50 years ago. This was like modern in color and it was pretty intense. And it was also something I'd never, you know, I'd never conceived of that sort of story. <clears throat> well, the uh, as I was reading this, one of the things that kind of came to mind was um, the the Heaven's Gate cult and the mass suicide mm-hmm. that they had. Re the comet Halebop, and it just it, it's another one of those stories that look. I don't know if there's any kind of conspiracy or anything like that related to the Heaven's Gate cult, but I mean. It does kind of make you wonder, what is it about these cults that, assuming that they are just cults and not, you know, something else, what is it about these cults that makes people just want to, rather than kill other people, kill themselves? There's that. But then, you know, I think it was Lewis Black who had a sort of a funny little bit about Heaven's Gate. It's my firm belief that this country has lost its mind. We are completely nuts now. It started, I think, with the Heaven's Gate people. That was the first sign that there was something desperately wrong in our culture. When 39 Americans killed themselves in a mansion, in a mansion! You don't kill yourselves in a mansion, you kill yourself in a shitty apartment like I live in. And they killed themselves in order to get to a mothership that was conveniently located out of sight behind the hale Bop Comet. 39 Americans. And they were collected by a guy who went around the country in the early 70s, and nobody stopped him. He said that his name was Bo, and he introduced his partner at these meetings that he had, and he said her name was Peep. That is exactly, this, look, this is in the public record. You, you, I, I couldn't even think this up. Okay? This is too good. He said, he said to these people, my name is Bo, this is Peep. If I'm at a meeting, and a guy says, my name's Bo, this is Peep, guess what? End of meeting. We have nothing to discuss. I'm out of there, unless, of course, they're sheep. And if Peep is dressed properly, well, I'll stay around quite some time. How do we get to the mothership, Bo? What do we do? Well, we don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't do drugs, we don't have sex. Well, you'll have to kill me now. You've taken away all four food groups, I'm fucked. He actually told them if they wanted to continue to have sex that they should be castrated. Seven castrated themselves. I always thought that all of us had a little small voice of survival somewhere. 
I, I would think that would be the deal breaker. When you find yourself in the bathroom holding a weed whacker in your pecker. I believe that a little voice should go off, Hey, 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 I don't think this is the group we should join. Maybe we should try a bowling team. <laughs> you know, isn't there just something inside of your head that says, Hey, this is a little bit weird. Why don't we go play some video games and forget about this? This is this is crazy, you know? I mean, yeah, yeah, that 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 is actually something that's actually something that they that a cult likes because that weeds people out. It weeds people out with that mechanism. They don't want somebody with that mechanism. They want people who are who have no no anchor to reality. And then they can bring them in to a closed, you know, society and a closed belief system and anchor them to that. And then the, once you anchor them to that and somebody's had no anchor, they're going to hang on to that for dear life. That's going to be the greatest thing. You're, you're going to be able to be the first, you know, family that they've really had and that sort of thing. And that's how you control people. And I think that's why that a lot of times they end in suicide or something or, you know, um, or a standoff with the government or stuff because you have it's it's all based on the mental illness of the charismatic leader. And once he gets to a point of where either he gets in Caligula mode where he starts being like, well, you know, I might as well indulge in all that, you know, in all this that I'm doing or he's indulging in drugs or whatever but at some point, it probably is starts to become almost impossible to maintain the illusion, you know. And when and it usually is like the government's coming in to investigate. Something's coming that's going to just break down the reality that they're living in, and the suicide's a way of of putting an end to that narrative, you know, their, their narrative ends in its own, still in its own bubble. You know, it allows everybody to maintain that reality. And maybe if you're that, that mentally ill or that desperate for that, you know, it's preferable to not lose your reality. It's preferable to die than to lose your, 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 you know what you've built every your entire being on your 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 entire personality and personal reality yeah right. you're just you're screwed you know getting <laughs> if you're sitting in a jail cell 6 months after the end of the earth was supposed to happen that sort of ruins it you know that's that's sort of a spoiler on top of it and and some are more reasonable and just set the clock back. Oh, well, we figured that out wrong or whatever. And uh, but uh, it, I think that also div divides the real con men will just keep stretching it out as long as they can. And the people who are like truly mentally ill, true believers that the Hale Bob comet was coming, you know, that guy might have Bowen Peep might have really believed that the Hale Bob comic was going to come. And then when it became obvious that maybe that wasn't going to happen, that was the thing that led to the... It might even be subconscious, but... Well, I don't know. It's just all around these... I mean, it, it's almost... When you read these, these sorts of stories, I mean, 
you're you're kind of left in, in a weird in a weird state of mind where if there's a conspiracy theory, it's really fucking weird. If this is every if you're supposed if the, the truth of this is actually face value, it is everything that it appears to be. It's pretty fucking weird. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's hard to get around the cognitive dissonance of that because, you know, I'm of the opinion that, you know, psychology plays a lot into uh, somebody's acceptance of a conspiracy theory that on some level people don't want there to be mm-hmm. one because, mm-hmm. you know, if there is, then it's pretty fucking weird and that hurts my head to think about and I don't want to think about that, so I'm going to watch TV. So when you find these weird cases where – there's no normalcy to it whatsoever. No matter how you look at this, it's fucking weird. Then, you know, I can understand how things like this and the public consciousness kind of fall to the wayside. It has to. Just from yeah. a psychological standpoint, people don't want to think in these terms. Yeah. And and if you do for too long, you start falling down into that trap, you know? Mm. That's why I always recommend people read the Illuminatus Trilogy by Robert Anton Wilson. It's the it's so so great on the, the the thought process of conspiracy theories and how not to. A great example is my favorite new conspiracy theory is the Mandela effect, which uh, I don't have you ever have you stumbled upon anything on the Mandela effect? I don't think we've spoken since since I started since I became aware of the Mandela effect. I guess not. No, uh, what, what is the Mandela effect? The Mandela effect is named after um, Nelson Mandela Figures. because there's a lot of people out there who have strong memories, and I've met a couple of them, who when, and I remember especially, I think it was, he died in 2013? Something like that. Something like that. Uh, when he died, I remember a lot of people going, Nelson Mandela died. I remember him dying in prison in the eighties. And like, there's people who remember like seeing the news report and like memorials of him. And they're just like, he, I just, I remember him dying in prison in the eighties and they have strong memories of that. And, um, another that's cited as an example are the Berenstein bears. Remember the Berenstein bears? Of course. Um, how would you spell Berenstein Bears? You know, uh, S T E I N, right? Mm-hmm. There you would think, but apparently not. Not. They're spelled Berenstein Bears, A I N. And there's people who are just like, no, I, you know, that that's always been spelled. I had the books when I was a kid. I remember, you know, when I see it in my head, I see it, and a lot of it is common misremembering. Th- uh, interview interview with a vampire is actually titled interview with the vampire but you'll hear ann rice say interview with a with a vampire and people are like the book was interview with a vampire i remember the movie was interview with a vampire and now it's interview with the vampire and so the whole the whole uh mandela effect conspiracy that first it was just like what is the mandela effect and uh and then people started conjecturing as to what it is. And now the running conspiracy that's – and you can tell something becomes a conspiracy when the first video comes out that uses the phrase deniers in it. Here's a video for you Mandela effect deniers you know, that proves 
um, Star Wars figures into it. Luke, I am your father is another one. Yeah. Where he never said that. And mirror, mirror on the wall um, is another one where the line is actually magic mirror on the wall. And we'll play it um, again, Sam. Yeah. And play it again, Sam. But now a lot of people have been tying it to 9-11 and CERN and saying that either 9-11 or something that CERN did have created – Basically, they've ripped off Crisis on Infinite Earths <laughs> in some way, like the like the like David Icke's ripped off. They live. This is sort of like there's there's different realities, and they're all like either depending on who you're talking about, merging or or pulling apart. And that there's people who are like the people who remember things differently are from a di- you know have some uh, how how not completely um, switched from one reality to another. So they're still remembering things from a different reality where Nelson Mandela's dead. And, you know, and I mean, celebrity deaths figure straw. There's a million people who are like that celebrity. I remember this person who's still alive dying, you know, in this, this day and age. So, so it's gone from being like, Oh, this, it's this weird effect on of people's memory and we name it the Mandela effect to its no, it's definitely an effect of the reality shifting. And if you don't believe that you're a denier. (laughs) So that's when, you know, the conspiracy theory is born. But, um, yeah, that's my favorite new one. And in the future, we might, we might have to have a Mandela effect show. Um, I'd be up for that. Sure. I'll add that in right now. In fact, now the now was that uh, everything that you had for uh, for this story, or do you or do you have a little bit more? No, I think I think that's pretty much both of them. Okay. Well, my turn then. Um, basically, the first story I've got, like Chris was saying, it somewhat ties in with elements of his on, I guess, some way or another. Mm-hmm. This comes from the Big Book of Hoaxes, page fifty-six. The title is. The Four Reporters and the Boxer Rebellion. And basically what it comes down to is this. Reporters from the Denver Post newspaper announced that the Great Wall of China would be torn down to open China up to international trade. Now, guys, keep in mind, this is a completely fucking bullshit story, right? They invented it out of whole cloth because they wanted to publish something that's interesting. And so the Chinese government announced that there were no plans to demolish the Great Wall. And the reason that they were so quick to do that is because there was a very hostile brand of hardcore Chinese nationalists who were already very uncomfortable with China's position on the world stage. But they could deny it all that uh, all they want. It wasn't enough. And so these Chinese nationalists called boxers went on the fucking warpath, murdering tons of Christian missionaries and even taking pot shots at their own government. And so ultimately what ended up happening was foreign nations sent in something like 12,000 troops into Peking to get the uprising back back into some kind of semblance of order. But by then it it was too late. And this whole mess ultimately, uh, it, it facilitated... Uh, Sun Yat-sen's 1911 Chinese Revolution, 
And all of these people died and all these revolutions happened because of a completely fucking bullshit news story. A news story and, and basically because these guys thought they knew nothing about, obviously, the politics of China. And who can blame them? That was back then. You would have had to go to China <laughs> or like get secondhand, thirdhand information from people who are coming from China that was old information at that time. So they knew nothing of the politics of, of China or what their story would do. It was just like, I, I'm sure they thought they, they chose the Great Wall of China because they thought no one can ever check this. No one in China is even going to hear about this, you know? Right. And yeah, and lots of people died because of it. And, you know... And this this may sound awful, but like it must, especially in their time, it must have weighed even heavier on them because they did they, you know, in that time, they might have been even in this time, they might be able to write it off as just like ah, a lot of Chinese people got killed. But ah, they got a lot of Christian missionaries killed and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah they, 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 I mean, the the feeling that that gut feeling when you fuck up. They must have had the most insane (laughs) (laughs) paranoia after that because, man, they fucked, they done, they done fucked up. Yeah. It's, it's just, yeah, this, this is that, that, like Joe McCarthy is just like, hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to find some way to enrich myself. And then it had, the consequences are just like incredibly destructive afterwards you know yeah well, and, and the, the just the way that people deal with information that's the thing is once the story came out you can't even debunk it just the act of trying to debunk this story gave it more credibility to the people who are upset by it so it was just this doomed thing even if the reporters came out and were like Hey, we just made up this story, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm sure the boxers would have been just like, yeah, you're just trying to cover your ass. You know, we're not falling for it, you know. Right. It was it was just. Doomed from the outset. Well, the you know, the thing about it and I've been I, I think it was especially in oddly enough, the big book of hoaxes episode. I went on this almighty rant about. I guess the evils of of big journalism and mainstream news and all this kind of stuff, because ultimately it's all corporate news. And as a result, you can always expect corporations to make sure that they're getting plenty of ad revenue Mm -hmm. and everything else is everything else takes a back uh, back backseat to to the wayside. Yeah. And so, you know, this to me seemed like it kind of typified everything that I was talking about. Where and that's actually one of the reasons why I didn't want to bring this up in that episode is because of the fact that it seemed like it was almost a little bit redundant. But what I wanted to do instead of focusing on a specific person in this case, like I did with what's his name, uh, Hearst, in the last episode, and this and this time around, I wanted to focus on the phenomena of it. You know, where this is the kind of shit that happens. Now, maybe it doesn't always lead to you know, violent, bloody uprisings and people getting murdered in the streets and stuff like that, that may not always be the outcome. I'm willing to admit that. But the fact is, anytime you mix profit with what is ostensibly truth, 
you know, no man can serve two masters. So if, if there's ever a conflict between profit and truth, which of those wins out? And well, all too often, it's it's profit that ends up being the first, last, and only concern for these big news outlets. I'll, I I can you can just ask Jennifer Raven about the other extreme of of this, where it's where the the more Jennifer Raven was our principal's daughter, and uh, and here's just like the minor minor things that of irresponsible journalism but it goes from the, the this level all the way up to the boxer rebellion in um in high school we had a losers party during the prom and it was out in the woods in, in you know outside this one town near the river and uh they sent the sheriffs out to to bust it up and they busted us all up and they made us get in our cars and follow them to a parking lot in Watertown and then they passed a clipboard around and told us to write all our names down on it. Oh, geez. What did they think? Was, oh, I know where this is going already. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, you know, <laughs> what's funny is I always have my favorite part of it was my friend Pat Madison, who is just such a good-natured guy. And he was, a, you know, they handed him the clipboard. He starts writing his name down. And this kid next to us who we'd never seen before was just like, Pat, Pat, is that your no, no, your name's Joe Schmo. And Pat going like, no, my name's Pat. Oh, and he's like, yeah, what are they checking? All right, passing around. So someone, of course, wrote Jennifer Raven's name on it. She wasn't there, but she's the, the principal's daughter. So they were like, ha, 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 we'll put her. She ended up grounded for a year. <laughs> oh, geez. Because of that, because it got printed in the paper. Nobody checked any of those names. It's very possible that Dufo de Manzo was one of those names. It's very possible. Let's just say that. I, somewhere I might have that article. but it, If you do, send it to me. I'll add it to the show notes here. I, I know that another favorite of ours, fake name, Steve Shortsleeve, was on it. Whenever Steve Shortsleeve. Steve Shortsleeve was. I think Uncle Randy Gardner started Steve Shortsleeve. <laughs> I've got I, I when I ran for student council president and I had to get a um, um, a petition together at, at one point in it. I've, I've dug out the old petitions out of my uh, files. And one of the first signatures on it is Steve Shortsleeve and, and <laughs> Randy Gardner's handwriting. <laughs> but yeah, but even even on a stupid thing like that, even on a stupid thing like that. And that was maybe not as much profit-seeking as just pure laziness on on their part. But that was when I first learned, oh, I pretty much every time I've been part of a, a news story and seen it on TV or read about it in the paper, it's been completely 100% wrong <laughs> almost every time you know there's been just basic things that were either not portrayed not portrayed correctly left you know left out things that didn't happen that happened or weird perspectives on it that are out of nowhere so yeah I, I think a lot of people learn that when they get in a news story that isn't like a puff piece on something you know like somebody given your restaurant a, a little write-up or something, but where you're like at a car crash or something like that, and and see it, it's just like um, never, almost never, do they get it right. 
Well, and it was actually like the awareness of that, you know, what happened, was, and this is this is terrible, but it does need to be said that this really happened, but it was the spring of, tw- of uh, 2014, and I was at work, and then I st- that my, my phone just out of nowhere just fucking blew up, right? I, I was getting all of these text messages from Stacy saying, you know, holy shit, you know, and basically what she was saying is uh, one of my neighbors, this was, I don't know, I don't... I, I don't know how big a news story this ultimately became, but it was a huge deal locally that uh, one of my neighbor's children got run over by a car in their driveway right in front of my house. And, you know, it was this, you know, it was this uh, big to do. And the thing about this that, you know, I mean, look, this is a tragedy. okay? and I like I don't like know know the guy that did it, but I saw him driving around all the time. He was always driving like an asshole and just being really obnoxious, going way too fast down the street and blowing stop signs and stuff like that. And, you know, I just thought, you know, everyone thinks the same thing to themselves. You know, that guy's going to get somebody killed. But yep. you're saying that in a sort of rhetorical way. You don't expect it to actually fucking happen. But then it did. And he was backing out of his driveway at top fucking speed and just ran that kid over. And, you know... So I get home first off, just even getting home from from work was kind of hard to do just because it, this was, you know, the, the entire street was just wall to wall filled with news vans and all this other fucking bullshit. And then the part that really pissed me off, you know, I'm pulling into the driveway, uh, like into my garage and people are following me like news reporters are following me into my fucking garage and you know, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that's fucking trespassing, dude. I didn't invite you in here. I don't know you. Get the fuck out. You know, and they, but they what they were what they wanted was the blood. You know, what well, did you know the child? You know, like how does all this make you feel? I mean, are you are you feeling suicidal? I mean, do you just feel bad right now? I mean, are you going to cry? And nothing that has anything to do with what happened. Well, the really. sensationalism of it, yeah. you know, and it's like you guys are a bunch of fuck. I mean, I, I look, I've never liked them to begin with. You know, to me, they're a step away from lawyers, although at least with lawyers, you know where you stand. But you, I guess with, you know, with, with all this. And so I ended up just chasing them out of my garage. I mean, I'm not going to give them, you know, like free quotes and stuff or, you know, next thing you know, they uh, they have me on TV. They're looking like an emotionally unstable, just fucking weirdo. Or worse yet, like I'm one of the people that's, you know, uh, leeching off of this family's pain. You know, I'm not going to be I'm not going to I'm not going to lend myself to that. It's just fucking it's not going to happen, you know. And so but this one guy, if I live to be 100 years old, I will never forget the look that this one guy gave me. You know, I, I chased everybody out of the garage and he was just giving me the stink eye. Yep. You know, and it's like. I'm the bad guy here. No, you know? because you're not acting like most people act. Most people most people cannot wait to get in front of that microphone and that camera no matter what to when there's a news guy there and they're usually like right up there like, I'll tell you all about it. This guy used to blah 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 and uh, this little girl's the cutest little girl you know. They're looking for that. And when you don't when you don't fall into that narrative, oh they hate that. They hate, hate, hate that. When when you don't want to give them what they want or, you know, and most people also are like, you, you know, when you see little kids and they're interviewing little kids and it's even just people talking to little kids, but we might as well keep picking on reporters. 
but they interview little kids and they just tell them what to say. You know, they're, they're just like, so are you getting ice cream? Yes. What kind of ice cream do you like? Uh, do you like chocolate? I like chocolate, you know, and most that's a spoken overt thing when they do it with little kids, but they're used to most people also knowing the drill. So they know that most people will come up and, and give them the sound bite that they want because those people want to get on television. So they know if they say, if you, if you say a certain thing and you say it's and the smarter ones are even better at being succinct about it and give them a really good sound. When, when you give them a really good sound bite that they want, they'll go, thank you. You know, And that's what I would do when I had a camera and somebody would like come up and like, boom, get what they had to say in really quick. It's just like, yes, you're making my job much easier. But at the same time, I wasn't doing news, you know, I was doing documentary. So I made my editing easier. But with news, it just makes their job of having to figure anything out easier if people so you were not yeah you were being a you were being a big poopy head poop poop and and why are you being mean yeah i just say fuck you to those people you know and i don't know i mean if there's ever a chance for me to not be on a news camera or not have my name printed in the paper bet your ass i'm i'm gonna take it all right it's just there's there's no win in that you know you're never gonna be uh, portrayed the way that you really yep. are Never. And, I, I, my, my one chance you can, you, you can put it, we'll look it up on, on, um, YouTube. I've actually got it posted when I was on, um, national TV was on, um, what is it? Dateline, whatever the Ted Koppel was nightline. Yeah. Nightline, something like that. Dateline. And, I don't uh, know. and they had the nightline reporter down there and they were, and we were outside filming the protesters of the Republican convention in 2004. Four, so it was in New York City right after 9/11. You know, in in just a few years after 9/11, so security was tight. Um, tensions were high because New York City was not into it, and it was just a general. And protesters were everywhere, so it was a general shit show. And I was down. There was a concert and bunch of speakers and one of them was chuck d so we were there because i'm a huge public enemy fan so i wanted to get an interview with chuck d and the nightline reporter was there and they interviewed my friend and then he goes you should interview the guy with the rabbit so basically the crux of what i said was i'm like the thing that's going on here that i don't like is that you got these people out out here and they're sitting and they're thinking about the people inside as a bunch of you know evil plutocrats sitting around a table plotting everyone's demise when in fact they're just a bunch of people like them and they love their families and they're trying to do their thing and you know it's 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 what you know it's not a a a nest of demons inside of there and and i was just like i don't like how it's portrayed as that so they cut me right off where you know people picture them sitting around a table plotting the destruction of everybody and blah 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 and then they cut it off right there. So so they take all the nuance out of my statement and they basically make me look like the person that I was basically speaking against. <laughs> right. On and that's that was that was 
And I was just like, oh, yeah, okay. So when you get on national news, it's even more through a funhouse mirror. It's not just portrayed wrong. It's turned inside out, you know. And what they did was they cut to a shot right after that of people inside who looked very, nor- you know, very normal doing the lame white person shuffly dance and looking very non-threatening. So they basically made my point but then made me the stooge in it. Right. So and that's yeah. the thing. I mean there's no there's no win in that. You know, I mean even if they present your point of view 100% accurately, which let's face it, they probably won't. But even if they do, you you still lose out on the fact that you're taking their bait in the first place. Hey, you get to be on TV. You've the lost only, just on that. The only win I got out of that, and uh, as you just said, it's a very, you know, whatever. It was it was fun for 10 seconds was that, you know, all my friends who were back home that watched Nightline that night saw me and my friend, <laughs> our heads pop up out of nowhere without, no, you know, all of a sudden we were talking on their TV so we freaked out like five or six of our friends who just happened to see it. And that was about that's about the only positive. And I got a clip of it where I could say, look, I was on national TV for whatever, you know, along with the hundred and fifty million other people who've had a, a, a soundbite clipped in. But yeah, yeah. But yeah, I guess my point was sort of made. But, yeah, in a roundabout, manipulative, funhouse mirror fashion. So, you know, and once you've participated in a couple of those things, you can't watch. I can't, you know, I couldn't watch Nightline after that and take it completely seriously because I know, you know, what's what. Whenever I see an interview, I think, oh, I wonder what they said on either side of that clip there, you know. And a, a lot of times... You know, you just people's even the most cynical people have that weird. I have it, too, where of human nature where they think, ah, you know, you know, sometimes they might cut something wrong like that. But, you know, they probably for the most part, they're just doing their job, blah, 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 blah. No, no, probably not. (laughs) You're probably not cynical enough. Even the most, you know, it's 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 an odd odd thing but yeah so basically don't trust nothing you see on any news nowhere and even the people who are like I only trust internet news 90% of that internet news is sometimes they'll dig more into it but it's just still warmed over news that they've gotten from the mainstream news right most of those internet news shows don't have reporters out gathering it they're getting it from the AP and then taking their spin on it or or doing a little different research on it but it's still there's just very little i often wonder about that of of who are the few people who are doing the raw news report you know that 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 who are the people that like are out there that get those five stories every day that get memed out you know and end up in all the news shows and and on the in, whether it's alternate news or whatever, it's usually the same sort of stories that are getting hashed over. It's weird. Yeah. Well, and that's that's basically what I had for uh, the four reporters and the boxer rebellion. So, did you have anything else you want to throw in before we move along? 
No, I'm just really happy where we're going next because we're, we're, it's definitely lightening up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a little less and less uh, violent and bloody with every passing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this next one comes from the big book of the 70s, page 16, title of which is The Short Happy Life of Disco, which basically charts the history of, of disco such as it is, the five or six years during which that was a real genre of music. And then uh, basically talks about, I guess, Disco's Undoing, which we'll come back to because I've got some interesting social commentary on that. But uh, to start with, you know, Disco is one of those genres that I've always sort of had this kind of repulsed affection for. I mean, on the one hand, this isn't it's hard to think of this as music in the in the usual sense of the word, like the strictest sense. But. I gotta tell you, you know, these are some of the finest pop songs that have ever been written. You know, even if they're not necessarily good, however one chooses to define good, even if they're not really good, there's something that's interesting about them. And there was a song by uh, Donna Summer, and I'm, of course, now I'm forgetting the name of it, but it ends I'll with. Hangover? Uh, no, it ends with, for your love, your love, your love. Oh, your love. And that's how it ends, right? But so um, maybe people can find it. And it and it has this kind of, uh, you know, uh, eerie kind of spacey end, mm-hmm. like coda portion to it. And for its time, I mean, this is relatively avant-garde stuff. I mean, everything about it is it's a very conventional pop song. It's got a very conventional uh, pop like time signature it's got a very conventional pop melody but at the end of it it gets a little bit weird you know and then others of them they're they're fairly conventional pop songs except at one point they get a little bit racist or some of them they're they're fairly conventional but then they get a little bit violent or something and it's like on the one hand it's everything that people seem to hate these days about mainstream music in one sense but then there's always one or two elements that are a little twisted, you know? And so it's like if you just if you just don't think about it at all, you, you'll miss it. But if you do actually kind of pay attention a little bit to the song, there's there's a like a dark side to it or there's oh, a yeah. weird well, side. Summer was sort of the master mistress or whatever you want to say of the of disco with depth. You know, where it was crafted like a, not just a song, but, you know, a song with maybe a darker theme to it. And she'd also use like minor chords and give them, give it a little spookier feel to it rather than, you know, the traditional completely upbeatness of, of it because you're out dancing or something. But, you know, that was also the after, you know, like anything it starts out really sunny but disco also had a lot of like drugs involved with it so then you had like a lot of people who were making the music were seeing a little darker side of it and it was coming through it was in the same time the eagles were writing songs about um you know the 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 sort of caligula like antics of of pop stars and and you know the California rich people and stuff like that. There was towards the end of the '70s, it all took on that tinge of corruption, you know, and 
de- a little degradation on the side. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's some depth into a song. <laughs> no, and it does that. And so I found this uh, this disco mix on YouTube. And for those of you who are Facebook friends with me, I've shared this disco mix a couple of times just because I really do think it's it's really good work music. Because sometimes, like especially at work, you know what you need sometimes is music that you can ignore. You know, and so you've got something that's going in the background, but you're not really, it's like you're not really focused on it, I guess. And so what this allows you to do is it keeps your rhythm going, but not in a distracting sort of way, you know, and disco is kind of unique in that you it's a you, beat. Well, yeah, it, right down to it. It's a beat that keeps going. Yeah. For momentum. And you don't really get that with. Uh, with some other genres that I tried, you know, that really kind of, you know, sludgy kind of post rock type stuff. You don't get that with classical music. You don't get that with, you know, thrash metal. You really only get that kind of in the zone type of headspace. Oddly enough, fucking with disco, which when you think about it, what disco music was designed to do was get you out of your chair and start dancing. Dancing. And that's not the purpose for which I was using it. I was using it to kind of help me kind of home in, kind of zone in and focus and all of that. And I thought, you know, somewhere there's got to be a, like a disco producer who'd have a a, uh, a heart attack knowing that I'm using his his, no. his songs as work, work songs. No, it's uh, uh, they would love it. They would love it. I mean, it's the same. I mean, when you start uh, your introduction, when I, I was instantly holding my tongue because like I, I, I consider like from John Cage ambient soundscapes music up to if it's if there's some sort of intent to making it music, then okay, it's called music. But I look at disco as being almost the most primal basic based upon you know, it can get stuff added onto it, but disco at its basic is the boom 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 a driving beat. To and it, I mean the the most useful thing of it was pragmatic aspect of it of is it was for a dance club yes where you could play a record for 20 minutes and people you know people wanted to dance uninterrupted for as long as possible that was you get it's like jogging or you know whatever that's how people would get enjoyment from it and you're out there mixing and trying to pick people up or some people go to dance just because it puts them into a great headspace and makes them feel good and makes them feel tied into their bodies but that's what disco music does it affects it goes to your body and it's not something that you have to engage your mind with and that's what it's sort of doing with you is it's it's there timing up with your heartbeat and it's moving you forward and it's giving you forward momentum you know and whether you're dancing or not maybe your head's bobbing up and down a little bit you know yeah and and your head might bob up and down again with the, with the classic rock radio station, but it's going to be bobbing at different speeds, and there's going to be breaks, and there's going to be, not disco, even when you're mixing songs together, it's just sort of boom, 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 and it will, and if you're like, say, want to get into a meditative sort of headspace, it's, it's, it's good for that. It's, I mean, it's, it's right down to the primal aspect of where you have uh, the the 
tribe in dark, darkest Africa that just has drums and they're dancing around a fire. That's hmm. that, that that has rhythmic structural, you know, basic rhythmic structural things in common with disco music, and so you know the original earlier disco music was very simple and very upbeat, and then as time went on, it got added. More and more. I wasn't a big fan of disco at the time, but now you know there's a lot of it that I just I just love. I mean, one of my favorite bands, ELO, would took some forays into disco. Yeah. And I'm I'm going to see them in September. I may have already seen them by the time this comes out. And they have a full orchestra. Basically, they have for the first time everything they need to replicate the sound of a, of them on vinyl in a live context, which makes for a boring concert because you're sort of listening to just the record. But at the same time, I'm very excited to see like the four or five disco songs that they do performed live because you just never see that with a string section and the. That that '70s disco sound, made by actual instruments, is a rarity these days. You know, a lot of times, <laughs> even in the studio, it's a it's they're not made with real instruments. So, I'm really looking forward to actually hearing '70s style disco performed accurately by a live um, orchestra. I mean, um. The, the complaint with disco was that it was that it was shallow and that was I think missing the whole point of it and a lot of the times uh, uh, you know if, if rock wants to point a picture uh, finger at disco for being shallow it should expect you know hundreds of fingers pointing back <laughs> because you can find as much sh- you can find as much shallow and deep disco as you want and the same with rock or pop or you know, I'm sure there's some classical music that when it came out in those days, they were just like, this is fluff. Why do we want to listen to this twaddle, you know? Well, and that actually is a, a tie-in, I guess, to the demise of disco, which most people consider happened. And, there, and you've actually got a, a specific date for it in this case. Most people consider the death of disco to be July 12, 1979. <laughs> and this is dis, uh, Disco Demolition Night, where... Basically, a Chicago DJ called for Disco Demolition Night in in Comiskey Park, wherein, I can't even call them fans, but I guess detractors, whatever you want to call them, people who don't like disco, used dynamite to (laughs) blow up thousands upon thousands of disco records, and the whole thing uh, degenerated and turned into a full-scale fucking riot, in a sense. And there's a, there's a, afterwards, you know, like at the time that this exact incident happened, there was something like six or seven or eight or something like that disco records in the top 10 or top 15, I should say. And six months after this happened, there were maybe one or two. And then that was it. And then after that disco just dried up entirely. And there's a name for a social phenomenon like this basically whenever a big event happens and then the tide turns either for something or against something or just whatever basically when the public mood changes based on one event 
there's a name for that and it's called preference cascade and basically the way that social theorists believe that it works is that people are essentially tribal in their thinking or mm -hmm. maybe collectivist and that they tend to just go along to get along and so even if they personally don't enjoy something they a preponderance of people will still go along with it simply because they believe they're supposed to. It's part of maintaining um, conformity, social conformity. Now, the minute they realize that other people feel the same way that they do, they don't like something either, and then it's like overnight, yeah, the story changes. That's called preference cascade. It's when I, I guess a majority of people realize they are in fact. A majority of people when it gets articulated enough for everybody to know that it's okay to articulate it <laughs> and then it just snowballs right yeah and some people i think it's a bit premature myself but some people identify donald trump as preference cascade now i'm not sure if he if, if you can really forecast something like that but the point of it is to say, or, or actually, here's something that's well, probably le less yeah, objectionable. Well, we're, we're not into the general election yet, but if, I mean, definitely the primaries, um, could you could use the primaries to point to that for sure, you yeah. know. Or here's, here's one. Um, in, I want to say September and October of 1980, if you look at old polls from back then, in the great majority of them, what you were looking at was... A Jimmy Carter fucking landslide. It was going to be a mess. We're talking like apocalypse. This was going to be a wipeout. Ronald Reagan wouldn't have even known what hit him until it was too late. That's what all of the polls said. And then they they had the the only Carter-Reagan debate that happened during that election. That debate happened, which many people believe, and I kind of have to count myself among them, many people believed that resulted in a preference cascade that instead of ensuring a Jimmy Carter landslide, ensured a Jimmy Carter fucking wipeout. And that is what a lot of people look back to and point to and say, if you ever need an example of what preference cascade looks like, that's a preference cascade. Well, Carter had sort of two things that happened too, that right before Reagan, that just sort of set the stage for that. And one was the oil embargo and one was the hostage crisis. Yeah. And those just like, once those two things hit, you know, it was easy to, to flip the flip the narrative on him because right, but, but the, he was the name generally, the... generally not very maligned as a president in my memory as a kid. But then again, presidents were less maligned as a, because there was less media to just feed on them. But like most of the stuff that you would see about Jimmy Carter up until those things happened were just sort of like things about like he was a peanut farmer, you know and here's the story of his you know, of his born again experience and stuff like that. It wasn't you know, people trying to look for ways to to attack him until both those things happened and those pissed people off. <laughs> right, but the, the, the point of the theory is that there comes a triggering event Yes. That causes it. So those may have been what changed people's minds. It was the debate that caused the cascade. And again, I wasn't there. I mean, I, shit, I wasn't even, I was barely born. 
for I was only born in October of 1980, so do the math. But Reagan was insanely telegenic too, and so uh, you know uh, uh, you can compare it a, a little bit. Probably not as extreme as to the Kennedy Nixon debate, where Nixon was you know was was whooping Kennedy, and then they had the debate, and the people listened to it on radio said that Nixon won, but everybody who watched on TV. Said that Kennedy won because Nixon was all sweaty. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, stuff like that. It, you know, stupid stuff like that can have a huge effect on people psychologically. Oh yeah. But I don't think disco died as much as it went into remission for a long time, and then it came back. It didn't come back, but it was replaced by techno music because. Young people needed something to dance to that was new, you know. When they went out and they wanted to dance, so techno music happened. DJs almost replaced bands, and then techno sort of did the same thing that disco did, where it reached its saturation point to where nobody wanted anything to do with it anymore.、Mm. And now, now when I listen to the pop stations, you hear some Daft Punk, you hear some. Some of the stuff—it's straight up '70s disco pop, but it's now in a pop context. It's on the radio. It's probably in the dance clubs too, but it's not a movement anymore. It's just now just another genre that pops up now every now and then, you know. And when you hear the beat, and when you hear the chanky, chanky chank guitars, and 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 I think it, for a while it was sort of. Brought back as a retro appeal,、yeah. and now it's even transcended the retro appeal to where that's just become where people aren't like, oh, this is hip and cool because it's weird and and funny and kind of goofy. They're just like, I think there came a time culturally where people just go, you know, I like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I I like hearing that that chanky chank guitar and that beat, you know, and and if you put some nice vocals to it and stuff, I'll listen to it, you know. So there isn't as The like standoffishness to it, as there, you know, the, or the 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 partisanship of tribalist of like I'm a rock and roller. I don't listen. You know, there still are there still are metalheads and punk rockers and stuff nowadays, but the music scene seems to be generally more mixed than it's ever been. Yeah, I, I, tend, I tend to agree with that, but you know the.、Um... The perception I had of disco, like as a genre, when I was a kid, what it, it was this—it was basically just this kind of just—I I didn't have any other word for it. It's just crap. Yeah. You know, it's like the older you get, sometimes you can see the complexities of things, and what you realize is that if you simply think of disco music as pop music, you fail to take into account that that at least the most some of the more memorable disco songs, they always had one foot. Somewhere else, you know, it was never meant to be mass consumption,、uh, sell as many as possible, appear on American Bandstand type of stuff. You know, there's an element of that, but there's also an element of just what the fuck. You know, like what did I just did? Did they say what I think they said, or <laughs> or or is just weird, fucked up, spooky, eerie, spacey something instrumentation? You know, there was always something about it that is. Very cookie cutter, very formulaic, but then there's this other part of it that is anything but. And to me, what 
the combination of those two things, to me, is successful. You know, you can have, I guess, the the uh, prim and proper pop music on the one uh, on the one hand, and then two or three elements of the song that are just like, what the fuck did I just hear? You know, and to me, that combination is successful. You know. Oh yeah, and I mean, it's like anything else. It became a huge, huge fad. And so, therefore, there was a lot of demand for it. So you got a lot of crap, and you know, you had you had people who were who were, who treated it as an art, and it was something that they were interested in doing and loved doing. And then there were people who were like, "Hey, it's not too hard to put a beat on this, and just like put a few lines of vocals over this and and put it out, and people will dance to it." And, People might even like it. So there was a lot of there was a lot of garbage, yeah, piled out. And you can see that whenever you know when I'm at a garage sale, and you'll see people who used to be DJs during the disco era, and you'll start going through there, and especially people who were DJs during the the disco era. You know, you start going through their collection, looking for the good stuff, and that you just start realizing how much of it was generic crap that like. You, you, you go. Oh yeah, I remember that was a song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or a lot of it you don't even remember at all. You'd have to be a DJ like pouring through all that stuff to remember. It. But you know, ninety percent of it was crap that all sounded the same, and and uh, and and you still have to dig through it to find the the stuff like uh, oh what what's that band? Santa Esmeralda is a really good disco band. And they did re- they did remakes of like House of the Rising Sun, you know, classic rock songs with a Spanish twist to it. But you know, each song was like the side of an album, you know, just a twenty minute, at you know, with long disco just beat segments on it, made made for people to mix other songs into it. And it's it's great. It 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 it's, it's it takes you on a little ride through each each song or and like i mean and then you have the, the ones that transcended it like the bgs yeah who were not even di- you know they weren't disco artists but like all it took was one album uh, uh, and that's a couple what they're hits, known for yeah and and they're considered a disco band because they were just good songwriters that said okay let's work in this format this format works really well with our vocals and our style and they were always a chameleon like band too like we'll just do whatever's new and but when they took to doing disco songs they put a little extra work into them you know the set the staying alive is kind of a depressing song you know it's about someone who doesn't know what the hell they're they're doing but they you know they're have enough confidence to dance well <laughs> But otherwise, your life is a pile of shit, you know, and much like the movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. And For Saturday Night Fever. Sorry. And you could and it was it, it reminded me a lot of like Born in the USA, where both of those songs were huge hits. And once they got into that stratosphere of hugeness, people sort of took them as since they were so popular and upbeat sounding. That they were uh, up, that they were upbeat songs, and both of them are kind of, kind of depressing yeah. <laughs> and, and cynical. And uh, you know, Born in the USA was kind of angry and sarcastic, and uh, 
it just sort of flew over everybody's heads and it became you know well you know the first time i ever i i can remember noticing not the first time but like a, a like a really notable time i can remember noticing a huge disconnect between what a song is and how people took it they're actually yeah. I, now that i think about it they're actually two really good examples but one of them was I went to a Pearl Jam concert in October of 2000 and if you go to a Pearl Jam concert you can generally expect that they're going to play uh, their song Better Man now I like Better Man I think it's a, a pretty pretty decent little song but it the the lyrical I guess intent of that song it is what it is but I would look over and I'd see all of these couples like making out with each other yes, and all this. Yes. And I, and I thought, what is it? They obviously like this is like their song. Like this is like their yeah, love they song. Listen to the lyrics of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an it, important song to them. Yet they're totally. Yeah. This is us, baby. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, the the key line in the chorus is she lies and says that she's in love with him can't find a better man i mean what about that is a sappy romantic ballad to you you know i mean that's that's really sick you know yeah. uh, but we're yeah, making out that we settled for each other <laughs> yeah or, or another one was um celine dion's my heart will go on which when you think about it i mean i know that's a big you know peppy happy poppy love song and everything but it's really not i mean you know it that song it's it comes from the movie Titanic, which should tell you something right there, but the the meaning and intent of Titanic is in those lyrics, you know? My heart will go on. I mean, I'm going to live without you, you know? And, you know, people are playing this like at fucking, like at weddings and stuff, weddings. and they're gazing into to each other's eyes longing. I'm like, this, you guys are not listening to this, you know? No, no, we had, we had somebody have our band play at their wedding, and one of the songs they requested us to learn was Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Mm, I don't know that one. It's by Meatloaf. And it's a classic rock song. And it's about somebody. It's about, you know, the first part of it's A. If you're not familiar with that song, you need to go out <laughs> and find the music video and watch it right away. It's one of the most entertaining pop songs ever written and dramatic. It's like a little mini play. And the video is Meatloaf in his full, humongous, sweaty glory with this little, tiny, beautiful, athletic, 70s sort of Pat Benatar singer singing the woman's part and full making out, third, second, third base, making out with Meatloaf on stage. It's horrifying. But the, you know, the whole song is structured. In the beginning, it's a guy making out with a girl in the, in the car trying to you know, swearing to her if she'll let him have sex with her, that he'll love her forever. And, uh, and she's just like, no, 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 you know, we have to get married, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And then at the end, he marries her to, in order to have sex. And then, the, and, you know, he swore, he, you know, I swore I'd lo love you to the end of the time. And then the last part of it is, uh, you know, now I'm waiting for the end of time, <laughs> <laughs> you know, to get to, so I don't have to see any more of you, you know, because if I have to spend another hour here, I'm going to go nuts. And that's the end of the song. But in the middle of it, <laughs> while they're making out, I can't remember. It's got a famous sports announcer who does a play by play. Oh, he's sliding on the second. He's 
He's out at second. Oh, safe at second. You know, he's coming and, into home. Yeah, so. it's. Is he gonna? Uh, you know, is he gonna make it? He's sliding. He's sliding. Stop right there. Down, down, down. You gotta. It's. 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 But they wanted the, that played at their wedding. At their oh, wedding. Oh Lord. <laughs> and when I go, whenever I've seen Bob Dylan, probably like 10, 15 times. And when it gets to um, um, like a Rolling Stone, all the hippies hold hands and and go, "Why, yay!" You know, it, you know, like here's a song. It's and it was that was the song of that is one of like Bob Dylan's infamous just telling people off about their hypocrisy and like sort of telling a specific person off, but gen- just generally like telling people off and. And it's very cynical and kind of cruel. Yeah. And but to them, it's this hippie peace and love anthem. And you see people just like rocking. But how does it feel? It feels pretty shitty, is what it feels <laughs> like. That's the point of the song. But yeah, people are weird. Yeah. What they? <laughs> well, I was. Um, I. I basically went to somebody's wedding, and it was the same type of a thing where she the the bride wanted this Coldplay song called Yellow uh, to be played uh, during at some point or another you know during the reception she wasn't picky as to when she just wants that played somewhere right and it, it's again it's like you know are, are, are you listening to what this means you know because for you I bleed myself dry that's one of the key lines of the song it, it's even repeated to drive it home for you i bleed myself dry you know that is that's not a, a very loving statement you know it's just some it's, people think it is they're called dysfunctional <laughs> i guess and like you know and the thing is you know when i asked her about it she's like yeah look i know what that song is but you know she said that she liked the guitar riff she liked the sound of the vocal and she actually she said that you know if it, basically if you can find a way to avoid lyrics the song itself is actually really elegant and beautiful, and it, it's got—it's not so fast that you're blown out of your seat, but it's not so boring and slow that you fall asleep. And she said it's a, just a nice, good, mid-tempo, inoff- otherwise inoffensive song. And she said that probably most people at her wedding probably wouldn't be listening to it, not at least not in that kind of detail. And, and she's totally right. And so I, I said, okay, well, as long as like you don't really like feel the way those lyrics uh, as long as you don't really feel that way that's okay she's like no no but it's you know it's like in a great majority of cases it's like i gotta wonder you know um anyway i like i don't want to beat it to death but uh, you know are, are are you listening to this i mean you know you, you know what this means right you know and i, I don't want to be that guy but sometimes you kind of have to be that guy so here we are well it's so strange because it's sort of common wisdom that if you want to really get people to listen to a song ever you know i mean it's every once in a while you'll get a hit that's an instrumental and it's usually tied to something that people associate it with like a movie or something so that's why they grasp onto it as an instrumental but you know i I mean i remember there's this i had some friends who had a really good three-piece band and they basically sounded like a mixture of rush and Black Sabbath with no vocals. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, they they were amazing, and seeing them in concert was amazing to watch and listen to. Yet they never would have gotten. They had a hard time booking clubs, and they they even booked 
uh, they even played on the ra- local college radio station that booked local bands to give them exposure. They were angry when these guys came in and didn't have a vocalist. Yeah. And that they were angry about it. And, and like, uh, people really want th- those lyrics there. for, And that's why people, a lot of times... When they think of bands, they, they always think of the lead singer as being the leader of the band, sort of whether, and, and a lot of times that's not the case, but since that person's there and singing the words and that's so important, they think of it that way. But yet, it's so important to have these lyrics, yet it doesn't seem very important to actually listen to them <laughs> and understand them a lot of the times. It's it's Music is strange. People, it, it's the way people deal with it and... You know, I mean, it's it's in that that mystical realm of where, yeah, that that girl doesn't care what the lyrics are, but that song does puts her head into a certain space or makes her think of feel a certain way, and it just works. The the lyrics could be about milking a cow on it, and and she would probably still want to hear it on her wedding. You know? Yeah. So you know, it's I guess it's when they derive like some sort of intent. That's when, I don't know, whatever. But So, that's basically what I have, though, about disco and, I suppose, musical weirdness. So, do you have any parting shots uh, for this segment before we uh, take a break? No, I'm actually going to listen to some disco today when we're done. (laughs) (laughs) This has made me want to listen to some disco. I'm going to find some Santa Esmeralda right after we get out of here. All right, cool. All right, well, you'll have plenty of time during the break, so... All right, so if you guys will just uh, sit tight, we're gonna we'll be right back. We're just gonna play a couple promos, and then we're gonna be rejoined, or I suppose we're gonna be joined by Scott Rifen of Dinner for Geeks fame. So please stand by. I haven't talked to him in a long time. Well, that's about to change. Suckeros, Moria Clawhammer here. Thanks to a tax loophole and a life insurance policy, I have an authentic Mexican taco stand. The explosive taqueria. Well, if you want to pound a burrito or just get your tongue on a taco, well, get off your ass, take a waco. Come throw some meat down your throat. If you want some food, here's a thingo. You don't want to eat like a gringo. Have some Mexican grub with some zingo. Taco sauce that explodes in your mouth. At the Explosive Taqueria in South DeManzaville, we have every kind of goddamn Mexican food you crave. We got chimichangas, ensalada, churros, chupacarnes, deep-fried jalapeno poopers, churritos, the famous taco shake. Taco shake discontinued. Triple refried baked beans, choritos, chimichibas, chimichochas, the Commodore's nachos, and the ever-popular endless burrito bowl. All prepared by our authentic Mexican cook, Manuel. My name 
name is David. I'm from Bolivia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the ladies, we have the Tila Tequila, a tiny taco, but you'll be amazed how much beef and cheese we can stuff in there. For the daredevil, we have the El Pollo Croco, a full chicken stuffed with four soft-shell tacos, two beef burritos, and two sides of your choice, deep-fried and slathered in taco sass. The taco sauce with sass. So lock down your sphincter and come on down. The Explosive Taqueria, 312 Elm Street, south of Monzaville. Tell them where Clawhammer sent you. Arrivederci. everybody, Magnus here. Look, the the next segment, I'm actually about to start it up in just a second, but before I do, I just want to go ahead and give you guys a little bit of a disclaimer here. And at, as I do it, I'm, we're going to... Basically, what I have to say is a little bit inside baseball. And this is stuff that I usually don't talk about on the show. Reason being, because it's just fucking boring to talk about. I can only imagine what it's like to listen to, but it's really boring just to even talk about this stuff but you know i guess in the vocabulary of covering one's ass i need to let you guys know kind of what you're in for here all right and basically it goes like this for those of you who don't know the way podcasting generally not always but generally gets done is over skype all right if if i'm just sitting around by myself uh talking about the shadow comics or, or fucking whatever, then I can just record shit straight into Audacity, save it, edit it, mix it, and then encode it. There you go. There's your your podcast, Haas. It's actually pretty simple. But if I'm going to have a guest on the show, it's a little bit different in as much as I have to use Skype and then I have to record the Skype conversation and all of these other sorts of uh, bits of business getting get involved and it can sometimes get a little bit technical, right? Now, in times past, it wasn't so technical or it wasn't so difficult or whatever else that it was just an unmanageable situation, right? But I don't know what the fuck has happened, but over the course of maybe something like the last year or so, Skype, it's like they've gone out of their way to make it a pain in the fucking balls to record Skype calls. I don't understand why they've... Well, actually, I, I think I do understand. I take that back. I think I do understand why they've done it. And it's the dollars. It's like anything, I guess. So that, I, that I assume, is, is the motivation for all of this. But all of this is a long, long, fucking long way of saying that the call quality, the stuff that you're about to hear... Guys, you have to understand. At the time that... I recorded all of this stuff. I could hear all of the participants in the Skype conversation. They could hear me. Everything was hunky-dory, right? Trying to actually fucking record this stuff, though, and then on the playback, when I have to get everything situated and ready to go so that you guys can actually have something to listen to, therein is the problem, right? Now, I've done my level best, and I'd like to think that when it comes to Skype, I know a decent bit 
you know, I don't, I wouldn't sit here and tell you that I'm some kind of a Skype ninja or anything like that. But I'd like to think that, you know what, I know a, a decent bit when it comes to, when it comes to Skype, right? I fixed, not Skype, when it comes to uh, Audacity, right? That's actually what I meant. When it comes to Audacity, I'd like to think I know a decent bit, right? But, so what I've done is, I've basically fixed this audio about as well as I possibly can, considering the material that I have to work with. And to me, I mean, at this point, this really is the straw that broke the camel's back. From now on, what I guess I'm going to have to do, whether I want to or not, is just have a, a Skype conversation with people that we, we all record our individual pieces, and then we bring them all together again later on inside of Audacity, right? Whether it's me who does it or somebody else, just fucking whatever. That's apparently the way that things are going to have to go, because this is not the first time that Skype has kind of fucked me on on the call quality. I don't know when, but you guys are going to hear another episode that's at least as bad as what you're about to hear. And guys, look, I'm sorry about that. I've done everything that I possibly can to fix the audio here. It's not my fault, all right? Uh, Chris Honeywell couldn't really record the call properly he had to uh, uh, up update his version of skype and wouldn't you know he is no longer able to record skype calls so hmm kind of an interesting coincidence there scott rifen wasn't able I, he came the closest i'll give him credit he came the closest of all of us to getting a decent skype call you know getting that recorded you know of all of us guys if it wasn't for rifen what you're about to hear you would not be hearing, okay? So you can love the, the uh, audio quality of what you're about to hear, or you can hate it, but you wouldn't have it if it wasn't for Scott, because I couldn't record the call in spite of my sincerest efforts. Chris Honeywell couldn't record the call in spite of his sincerest efforts. And so really, it came down to Scott, and thank God he was able to record it. And like I say, the end result... It is what it is, and I've done my best to make it listenable. If you... If you're struggling with what you're about to hear, just bear in mind, the original version of the audio that he sent to me was a fucking nightmare. And I'm not saying that to be mean to Scott or to be disrespectful or anything like that. I don't mean it like that. I'm just saying that, you know, the raw elements that I had to work with, guys, this wasn't exactly Taster's blend here. You know, it was the best that any of us had. And so it's like anything, you know, the the decision has got to be made do you release what you have and hope for the best or do you scrap the whole thing and try to start over again so anyway in the spirit of the sort of ramshackle uh, fly by the seat of your pants nature of the big book report i decided to err on the side of just going ahead and releasing this episode my fingers are crossed i'm hoping for the best and honestly i don't really think it's that bad but keep in mind that my my standards are kind of ridiculously fucking high so put a pencil to it i guess anyway point is i've done my best to sweeten this and make it listenable and so you know at that point or i, I should say at this point the uh the choice really is yours so i'm well aware of the problems that that, uh, that exist in this segment that you're about to hear i've done all in my power to fix them and this is just about the best it can be. So anyway, I just want to get all that uh, uh, out of the way up front. 
So I think that's basically it. So I'm going to pass you guys over to me, and I'm going to begin the second segment. So enjoy the rest of the episode. conversation, that is to say the very last big book report that there's ever going to be, dot, 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 probably. Now, the original plan that I had for this segment was basically to, inc- uh, was to include Chris Honeywell in it, but I'm not sure what's going on there. Uh, he's lagging something. I'm just not able to get a hold of him, so who's to say? Maybe he's going to be joining us in progress, but the way that it is right now, not very long after I launched uh, Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, and God knows, not very long after releasing the Big Book Report episode I did with Honeywell about the Big Book of Urban Legends, I received a Facebook message from someone who, at that time, had only recently started his very own podcast, and basically, this person waxed fanboy about really all sorts of urban legends and similar types of lore. And we can revisit that in just a moment. But for right now, what I want to do is welcome back to the show for the first time since the last time, the co or one of the co-hosts and one of the co-founders of the Dinner for Geeks podcast, as well as an award-winning radio host, Mr. Scott Ryphon. Welcome, Welcome back, back, sir. How are you? Any excuse to be on Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, sir. Any excuse. <laughs> well, I love having you on the show. You know, if for no other reason than, man, you are a one-man content generator. I can't imagine how you have that skill, but you yeah, certainly have it. So. I was born with it. Now... As I've said, what you and I are going to be talking about is the big book of urban legends. So before we even get into that, my question for you is, what exactly is up with you and urban legends? I mean, what's the allure there? <laughs> um, it's, I've, I've always kind of been fascinated with what's real. And I, I will tell you, as we talk about the book a little bit more, kind of how I tripped onto the concept of urban legends, but... Truth has always been a big deal with me, as, as I think it is for you. Mm-hmm. And knowing the truth has always been interesting. And people who claim to know the truth are also interesting to me. What I have found, you know, I, I live right here in beautiful Brunswick, Georgia, and host a radio show. And one of the things that I've made it kind of my mission to do is stop the gossip. You know, <laughs> what, I have, what I have learned over the years is that anybody who puts up one hand to the side of their mouth and leans in close and says quietly, you know, what's really going on is those guys don't know two things, jack or shit. <laughs> and 
And well, it's true. Yeah, no, and those are the guys. The ones that you know what's really going on here. They never know what's really going on. So I made it my mission. When I hear gossip, when I hear things going around, I go find the source and I go ask them. Uh, it's just it's kind of what I've always been interested in. And there were a number of things that I knew about from over the years that were real. They have to be real. I didn't have any knowledge of the concept of urban legends until one day. And we'll get into that, like I said, in the discussion here on the uh, on the book. But uh, the concept, the premise was introduced to me, and I became a real nut on the subject and spent several years just catching up on all of, actually, Jan-Harald Brunvon's books, upon which, of course, this current book we're discussing today is based. Right. And uh, actually to the point of writing him a letter, an email, and he actually responded to me, which was kind of neat. Oh, that's now, awesome. Now, the really weird part is this. I probably wrote that email, I don't know, 13, 14 years ago. But do you know what it was about? No. And this may, this may, this will knock you on your butt, actually. Oh, okay. We had in our area lots of rumors of sightings of a creepy clown. Oh, my gosh. I, <laughs> I swear to you. Oh, and, it, and it made the newspaper that people were spotting a creepy clown around. And, of course, it didn't happen, wasn't happening. And I sent him an email and said, hey, is, isn't this the kind of thing you want for your files? Isn't this, you know, isn't this a classic urban legend? And he sent me an email back saying, yes, the creepy clown is one of those things that's a recurring urban legend. However, I'm getting ready to retire and I'm turning my files over to the university. And then, of course, stupid me, because I know that guy from one thing and one thing only, and that's he's a professor and he writes these books. I think, well, that's obviously, since that's what I know him for, that's all he does. So I sent him a note back, said, you're retiring. Well, what will you do? (laughs) (laughs) And he sent me this email back with a, it was probably, it was the longest single paragraph I've ever seen where he outlined everything he was going to do. Go to jazz games, go to the Olympics, go skiing, spend time with his grandkids. I mean, he, he had it mapped out. He's a man on a mission. Yeah, but you know, you don't think about it when you think, you know, Stan Lee. When he's not going to write comic books, what's he doing? He's got a lot of other stuff he does. Yeah, I, well, and I guess that's the thing, you know, like expert syndrome, where you assume that all anybody does is that thing for which they are most well-known. For which they're known, yeah, exactly. You know, I guess it does raise the question, you know, does, does Roger Ebert watch a lot of movies otherwise? Not anymore. No. Well... <laughs> So the uh, <laughs> the creepy clown thing. Roger Ebert, you know, I will I guarantee look, you this. Roger Ebert watches no movies. Really? Okay. Well, well he's well. dead. Oh, oh Roger. Okay, fine. Okay, fine. <laughs> okay, fine. Then pre-casket, Roger Ebert. Did, you know, did he watch a whole lot of movies? I don't know. So yeah. But um, I mean, like just for pleasure, you know, because there's something about you know when you do something for a living, it's hard to do it anymore as recreation. That so is true. The um, the creepy clown thing, though, it does intrigue me. Well, I figured it would because it's it's become a nationwide thing now, lately. Yeah. And when I saw that starting to come up again, I was like, I know this. I've lived through this. I've seen this before. It wasn't all over the country at the time. It was just kind of here. But apparently, that's one of those things that does it does recur every so often. Well, you, you know, know what's really going, going on there, okay. right? <laughs> that is immediately the hallmark of a guy who's about to tell me the truth. <laughs> Actually, what I was going to say is one thing that I've noticed, and I'd like to think, look, I'm not a, exactly a connoisseur of these creepy clown videos or anything, but 
One of the things I've noticed is that in the in all of these videos, at least that I've seen, mm-hmm. one of two things happens. Number one, nobody gets hurt. Nope. Or number two, the clown gets hurt. But I've never heard of a clown successfully attacking somebody. No, well, it's hard to attack somebody when you got a bunch of damn helium balloons in your hand. You, okay, that is spoken like somebody who has never attacked anybody holding helium balloons in his hand. Because I'm here to tell you, it's actually very easy. All right? Uh, no, you're probably right about that. I don't know. All right? I just think that for something that's supposed to be like this huge, hysterical, nationwide crime wave yes. or what have you that's going on, there's been an alarming number of people who have not been hurt other than the supposed aggressor. So, I, look, I don't know. All right? Uh, I just think that's sort of interesting and as, as it happens that was something that I wanted to talk to uh, Honeywell about at some point that you know it I, I don't know this to be true but when I first heard about it and certainly in the first several videos I saw it looked like these were basically a bunch of drunken juggalos that were running around you know causing havoc and stuff all over the country but I don't know all I know for sure is that some huh? juggalos will do that yeah and, yeah, and you know, the thing is, they're not exactly the world's most stable bunch to begin with, but I would like to think that there's been a little bit of poetic comeuppance that was administered recently when it came to light that somebody attacked a creepy clown, Scott, I kid you not, in full Batman gear. No! Yeah. Now, every now and then, life truly does imitate art and that was one of those moments it, my facebook i kind of regard facebook as a vehicle for performance art to begin with anyway but man my facebook newsfeed was so entertaining to read that day you know i just wanted to make some popcorn and, and just sort through it anyway, now, it was, now we got a nationwide rash of creepy batman suited guys body really no oh <laughs> Okay, because that—that's that, a trend I could get behind. You know? <laughs> Might bring crime down in some of these bigger cities. Maybe they should try well, it in Chicago. Chicago. <laughs> well, let's face it. I mean, you know, in in the modern day world, Chicago really is Gotham City. You know? So, but uh, to get into uh, you know all of these different urban legends, basically, guys, the uh, idea that I had was just. Turning the all-important content portion of this podcast over to a rank professional. <laughs> Let him basically guide this conversation, go wherever he wants to go, talk about whatever he wants to talk about, and I would be here to assist, comment upon, or otherwise facilitate his remarks. So, with that out of the way, Scott, what are we talking about in the big book of urban legends? I'll tell you what, it's so funny. When you guys, that that email that I sent you guys, or the, the uh, Facebook message I sent you after that first episode that you and Honeywell did, I was so jealous listening to that discussion. I was mm-hmm. so sitting there going, why can't I be part of this conversation? And now I'm part of this conversation. I only wish Chris were here. Um, one of the things, the first thing I want to get into is the slasher under the car. Yes. And the reason I want to get into the slasher under the car is because for me, that's my urban legends origin story. Now, Derek Gross adapted this for the big book of urban legends. And uh, Mm -hmm. the slasher under the car, you know the premise. I do. 
obviously there's a there's a guy who hides under your car and when you come by he's got a knife in his hand when you come to your car he slashes at your ankle it's part of a gang initiation or whatever reason he's under there just nuts and then he gets out and runs away which of course on the face of it should really reveal itself to be ridiculous just because if a guy's hiding under your car have you ever tried to get out from under a car and run away <laughs> you can pretty on well kick occasions. him to death before he gets out from under the car <laughs> it's true <laughs> and uh but that was one that we believed i spent a lot of time i was a mall rat growing up mm -hmm. and uh as i suspect suspect many in my generation are mall rats um and i was one of those mall rats who really made the the full swing from just mall rat to employment and so i worked at the mall for a number of years and you want to talk about just a place that is a gossip content factory a mall oh yeah Oh yeah, uh, I've worked in one. It's just it's such an enclosed little society inside the mall, and every store is kind of a different little town, and news travels from town to town, and you play that that game of uh, operator mm -hmm. as things go down. And so uh, we knew about the ankle slasher at the mall. You know, we were very well aware that there was a guy at the mall who was slashing people's ankles. And that the newspaper wasn't reporting it because they didn't want to hurt tourism. <laughs> and, uh, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So <laughs> I mentioned it to somebody that also worked at the mall one day. I said, you better, because she was going out to her car and it was evening. I said, well, you better watch out. You know, there's a guy that hides under the car and he slashes ankles. And she looked at me like I was the biggest blooming idiot that has ever walked this planet. And she goes, really? And I said, yeah, watch out. She goes, no, no, that's an urban legend. And I went, it's a what? She says, come on, don't you know the, you know, the vanishing hitchhiker, the choking Doberman? What are you talking about? And she starts telling me about the, you know, what an urban legend is. You know, these folk tales that spread around from city to city, town to town, family to family throughout the culture. And they kind of travel in waves. They're kind of like viruses when you think about it. You know, they kind of travel in a little pattern. They infect one area, then they, it clears up and infects another area. And uh, I said, this is, this is ridiculous, of course. I mean, how can she be telling me that something that is conventional wisdom amongst my entire tribe at the mall mm -hmm. not be true? So, you know. Well, and, that, and that sort of leads, in, I guess, like to the social pathology of what an yeah. urban legend is. And when you think about it, I mean, it's not exactly the exact same thing, but... I think the same thing can be said of, like, electoral politics in a way, because there came a point, and damned if I can tell you when it started, but there came a point when the culture became convinced of the fact, you know, quotation marks, the fact, that Sarah Palin once said that she can see Russia from her front porch. I, yes. I mean, I, well, it's tempting for me to say I don't know where that started. Actually, I know exactly where that started. You know exactly where it started. But at some point... It's like that became gospel fact. Yes. And what she actually said and then what people think she said are not exactly the same. In fact, they're not even remotely the same thing. No, but Donald Trump said bigly, too. <laughs> right? Yeah, but you know what? Like, the difference is that's actually kind of funny, and I've been using that myself on purpose. Yeah, it's so funny, it, but it's not true. <laughs> he didn't say bigly. No, he said big league. He said big league. But, by the way, if you go to the dictionary, bigly is a word. So to mock him for it not being a word, A, is ridiculous, and B, uh, he didn't say it. 
No, he didn't say it bigly. And, you know, the thing is, there are these sort of memes that, that get started where basically somehow the lie becomes the truth, you know? Yeah. Fiction becomes fact. And at least in the case of urban legends, I think that there's a, a, a very high degree of entertainment value that goes into that. Other times, though, I mean, you know, when, when you start thinking about, you know, urban legends on the sort of the macro scale, on the micro scale, this is just garden variety gossip, and this hurts a lot of people's lives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, you know, and, and the thing is, I mean, there are all sorts of stories about my brother propagated in no small part by me back when I was in uh, school. And, you know, like just the wacky, crazy things that he used to do that he never did, but, you know, it makes people less likely to mess around with me if they think my brother's a lunatic. So, um, and, you know, and it's kind of funny, you know, you know, haha, looking back at it, but, you know, there are, there's some, damage that was done you know and it happens all the time and i don't know it's just i love urban legends not so much like the legends themselves but i guess the the phenomenon yes of them. and it's and, amazing what people do and will believe and what and people really believe these things i think because they want to believe them you know it, it's funny dr brunvon describes them always describes them as what stories that are too good to be true and that yes. means that they are good stories Yes. You know, they resonate. They're a good way to break the ice. They're a great, they're a great way to show somebody you have the hidden knowledge. You know, well, you I know. know. The, real, the real explanation for that is... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, no, it's true. Now, sometimes, and, and I'm not trying to detract you or anything, but or distract you, I should say. Sometimes you hear you you hear an urban legend and i think the slasher under the car i remember hearing this when i was younger you know mm -hmm. and you know the the version of the story that's included in in this volume it seems like it's primarily about women yes. the version that i was warned about when i was a, a teenager is that this is uh it's basically part of a gang initiation and what they do is yeah. they they cut your ankle so that you you know you you'll fall to the ground and then his buddies that have been hiding out of sight somewhere else will descend upon you and beat you literally to death wow and nice and the thing is i mean look that had i i disavow it as i say it but for some reason that had a very high degree of credibility with me when i was a kid and, and you know i grew up in freaking tomball texas okay this is not exactly compton <laughs> so it's not like there are gangs lurking in every behind yeah. every bush on every street. They're just—I mean, I, maybe there was one or two that thought they were tough guys or something. But for the most part, it's just that kind of stuff just didn't really go on. But for some reason, but there's this hysteria that sets in that makes it so easy to believe. And there—that is one of those hallmarks of the urban legend as well—is that that fear of the gangs and that kind of thing. Because that's also, if you remember, that's at the root of another one a very popular one called Lights Out. And I don't know that that's even in this book, to tell you the truth. I don't recall it being in here. It's not in my notes. Uh, but Lights Out, I have run across at in my town so many times it's not even funny. Usually get started with a flyer that's handed around a church. Now, you know what I'm talking about, Lights Out, right? When the car is driving around yes. without the lights on? Yes, and uh, the yeah. car is driving by and, the lights, and their lights are not out, don't flash your lights at them. You know, traditional driver etiquette is to let somebody know their lights aren't on, you, you flicker your lights on and off at them. 
Right. Well, these guys are going around, and from somewhere they're getting these flyers, and they're always a little bit different. And they're always, you know, one of the things that Brunvond will tell you, when you get a flyer that's, that's trying to reinforce an urban legend, you'll see certain things like all caps. You'll see that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, urgent language, lots of exclamation points. Uh, very definitive language. You will be killed. Yeah. And um, what, what essentially happens in these flyers is they say if, you, if you're driving around and you see somebody driving without any lights on, don't flash your headlights at them, which, of course, is ridiculous. You should be flashing your headlights at these people. But according to the flyers, you're supposed to not do that because when they see someone flash at them, that is their cue to turn around, follow you, and kill you as a gang initiation ritual. Yes. So don't flash your headlights at anybody. You'll be killed. And that's... And it's not true. No, it's not true. And the second I saw a friend of mine came to me with one of those years and years and years ago, and I had been boning up on... My Brunvond, and that was, I said, I saw that and I went, that's an urban legend. That's exactly, that's, uh, you know, fax lore, I think they call it nowadays. Or actually, probably not mm. nowadays. Now there's email lore. But, um, well, actually, I think at this point it's just Facebook lore. It's yeah. just Facebook lore, which is, yeah, which is a whole other ball of wax, isn't it? I mean, yeah. how many times a year are we going to see people put their disclaimer up there that they're going to allow Facebook to look at their pictures? <sighs> yeah, you know, I mean, I. <laughs> You know, look, you can think of me as foolish if you like, all right? I'm, and I'm not even going to disagree with you, but I, I remember when that was like a really big thing, like two or three years ago or something like that. And I figured, okay, well, once the craze dies out, that's basically going to be it. And as you say, every single year, there's some now it's like the jackass. You, you know, I mentioned, it, I mentioned it like viruses. You know, I, really, though, I talked about it like being a virus, but it really it's like the flu. It goes away and then comes back in a slightly different strain the next year. And, yeah, and it's it doesn't – honestly, there's a very small amount of credibility that I'm willing to give Snopes anymore. But one of the yeah. things they did do was uh, comment on that and saying, you know, look, number one – Facebook has not actually agreed to that, so you can post whatever the hell you want. But until such time as they they actually, in writing, agree to this, you know what you're doing is you're just annoying everybody on your friend list. And number two, you know what they said, and they kind of went out on a limb and said you may actually be doing the opposite of what you think you're doing because if you are aware of the fact that their terms of service say this, and they can prove in court if they had to that you are aware and uh, of, of what their terms of service are and that none of this should have been a surprise to you. And so you may actually be undercutting your own argument, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and the reason for that is because, as my revolting pig of an ex-boss used to say, the law is the law. The law is not logic. And so just be careful what you do. I mean, there are legal implications the minute you start dealing in legalese there are legal implications that guys i'm sorry you don't understand if you if you haven't been to law school so be careful what you you know what you put out there thinking that you're so clever you know yeah and and you may well be surrendering something that one day they've not asked for it now but you've already surrendered it so when the day comes it's done yeah um i you know i'm in a i'm in an interesting situation at work right now um we, we were bought out about two years ago by iHeartMedia, so we're an iHeart radio station now. Oh, all right. Um, our talk station, the one I do the morning show on, uh, through a bad series of decisions through previous management, 
uh, our email address, 1440wgig.com, was taken away from us. Uh, basically, we got it, they, they got into bed. The managers got into bed with another group of people. One of the things I asked them to make sure was that they would be able to retain the, uh, the URLs if there was ever you know, a divorce between the two companies. Right. And they said, oh, yes. And they, they basically got it verbal, but they didn't get it in writing. Oh. So when the time came to split them up, the guy said, oh, yeah, no, we, we'll, we'll give you those, but we're going to charge you X amount of money for it. And they went, well, wait a minute, we own those. No, 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 we own them. We're registered in our names, which I had told them was a bad idea. Um, and so that email address, we wound up having to go to 1440wgig.net. And, you know, the problem with that is nobody uses, you know, .net is just not something that comes off of people's brains very easily. Everything's .com. If you can't do .com, you shouldn't do it. And um, so for years, you know, I watched that thing sit there as those guys had it. And then they relinquished it, and some squatters got on it. And it oh, that's sat, even worse. Yeah, it sat and sat and sat. And about four years ago, and I was always checking on it, about four years ago, I noticed that it was about to expire. So I really intensified watching out for it. And mm-hmm. one day I checked, and it was available again. And I told Ooh. my boss at the time, I said, look, it's going to cost us you know, 12 13 bucks to get this thing. We need to get it. And he said, yeah, yeah, you're right, but let me think about it for a little bit. And I said, we don't have time to think about it. You know, somebody is going to squat on this now. And he kind of went, well, let's hold off for a little bit. And I said, okay, all right, fine. And I went and bought it myself thinking, you know, he'd give me my 13 bucks back and I'd just transfer ownership to him because he was a good guy. I would not have gouged him like that. Um, not a bad idea. No. So I went ahead and did it. I went ahead and bought the thing. And then he went, you know, I don't think we're going to buy it after all. So here I am with that URL. I went ahead and pointed it to the website because it helps me out, you know, in my career. Right. But now we've got a situation where two years into our being owned by iHeart, and this is four years of my owning this thing, they came to me asking me, hey, why don't we own .com instead of .net? And I had to tell them the story and then point out at the end, I own .com. I'm the one who owns .com for our station. Mm. And they kind of went, oh, well, you should be signing that over to us. And I kind of went, no. <laughs> I've got four years of fees and renewal fees into this now. And I would like to it's get all of that yours. back. It's legally yours. Yeah, yeah, it's mine. And, you know, I've got legal reason to have it because I'm the morning personality on that station. So, you know, you really couldn't take me to court, and why would you sue your employee for something like that? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm kind of in a situation where they're saying, you know, well, you know, we're willing to pay you your price and maybe a little more. So now we're hmm. having to – I'm actually in negotiations with the company to sell them this domain name. All of this just because some guy didn't want it. Whatever. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But I mean, I've held on to it all this time, and now, and you know, the, obviously the question is like, it's a little bit of something I could hold over their heads if I didn't want to sell it to them. But you know, that's not that's yeah. not why I bought it. I didn't buy it buy it to exploit it. But now the truth is, you know, that we're having that conversation. It's like, well, certainly I think I should get every penny back that I put into it. And then, Ooh, that's you know, reasonable. Why? Why not? Why not have the discussion about it a little more? And they're actually willing to pay a little extra. So, all right. Yeah. Well, um, all I can say is best of luck with that. You know, I hey. hope they make you whole. So. Oh yeah, I think it'll be okay. They've the guys that I'm dealing with right now have always negotiated with me in good faith. So. All right. 
Whereas, just remember, you don't really need written agreements in these things. If this experience oh, no. teaches us nothing else, we don't need anything in writing, your word is good enough. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the thing that really frustrated me with that management team at the time, is I had told them, you know, do not let them own these domains. Make sure that it is in our documents. That the, and the, they came back, no, no, we got it. The guy told us we could do it. Oh, okay. Well, that makes it all right, I guess. Yeah. And, of course, they denied Jeez. it when it came time to, to have the ugly divorce. Well, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, those guys were con men from day one, and I tried to warn them about that, but hey, who am I? Who am I? But what a uh, mess. Yeah, it's just no, it's just it, it's interesting though. Getting back to the uh, the uh, the the uh, oh hell, my brain just exploded for a second there. Sorry about that. Getting Slash back to the, the uh, too good to be true stories that we have out there. That these things do, do circulate, they go away, they come back. Again, the whole nation's dealing, as we mentioned a while ago, with the crazy clown thing. I've got a newspaper clipping from 12, 13 years ago, 14 years ago, that talks about our crazy clown then. And we're dealing with crazy clowns now. And all the kids from school know about the crazy clowns, even though there have not been any seen here. Yeah, and... You know, my filter, not a filter, but I guess the the standard I had for a lot of these uh, stories was always the too-good-to-be-true angle, where, you know, whenever you, you watch a movie, ideally what you're getting is a three-act story that's got a beginning, a middle, and an end, and in some way or another, if it's done well, the the conclusion of the third act will always call back to something from the first or the second acts. And when a particularly when the first, a, yes. Yeah. And when a story comes along that is so dramatically perfect that you could almost make a movie out of this, I start getting suspicious because yep. real life just there are exceptions. I, I speak here of the the two Bush administrations and how there is a lot of similarity, one calling back to the other there, but in general, life just doesn't work that way, you know? And whenever you hear a story about, say, like Phil Collins, he's giving a concert and he identifies the killer from the audience, you know, from the stage, and then of course the police come out and arrest him in the most dramatic way possible. I kind of have to wonder who would be stupid enough to believe this? <laughs> you know? Yeah, sure. And yet, it's uh, it yeah. is really a part of our culture, and we, you know, but it really also harkens back to kind of the earliest traditions that we have in our society, in our cultures. Period. Human culture is that the sitting around the campfire telling stories, you know, storytelling. You know, when you talk about going to see the movie with the three acts and all of that, I mean, they, we are a storytelling culture, and when yes. people can get in on the act, and the, and you know, urban legends are easy stories to tell, and they're always good and they're always entertaining. And so that's, and, to me, that's how they come. And, and the other thing is they're illustrative of certain things in society. Sometimes they're reinforcing of certain things in our society, which we'll get into later with some of the, the sexual ones. And sometimes they're just illustrative of certain aspects of society. You know, when we look at the, the automobile legends in Chapter 1 here, you've got things like the rattle in the Cadillac. Cla classic class warfare. <laughs> you know? Guy's driving around his car, keeps hearing a rattle, keeps hearing a rattle. He goes to the mechanic, can't find the rattle. Finally, rip the whole car to shreds and find a little rattle object in the door with a piece of paper. That says, "Ah, you finally found the, you know, you finally found the rattle, you rich bastard." <laughs> classic class warfare. 
Yeah, and I remember hearing that when when I when I was a kid. Except it, it wasn't a Cadillac; it was a Porsche. But it's the same. It's same the same thing. thing yeah. You know. And yeah, you know, sometimes you know when when it's too good to be true. And yet, people believe it. I don't know. <laughs> well, again, you want to believe them. That's the that's the sick allure of the urban legend in the first place, is that they're stories you want to believe. And again, sometimes it is because of that, I don't want to use this term out of context, but the social justice aspect of it, mm -hmm. which would be you know, the rattle in the Cadillac or, or the, the uh, solid cement Cadillac, which is in there, the Philanderer's Porsche. You know, All of those are kind of that same class warfare type story. The Philanderer's Porsche, of course, the story of the woman who's selling the Porsche for what? What does she sell it for? 20 bucks? Yeah. Something like that. And the guy said, why are you doing this? Well, my husband left and went to Mexico with his secretary. He told me to sell the house and the car and send him half the money. So here he goes. Yeah. And the thing is, and that that sort of relates to something that I talked about with uh, with Chris whenever we did, uh, whenever we talked about urban legends last time. Urban legends, they're kind of fertile ground for adaptation in as much mm -hmm. as you can throw something like this into a TV show or you can throw it into a movie. And the beauty of it is it's a story that already has a ring of plausibility to a, to a huge portion of your audience, number one. But number two, you don't have to pay royalties to anybody. And <laughs> that, that story of the wife, the, the torqued-off ex-wife who's getting divorced by her husband, that was actually used in... Uh, the movie, I don't remember so much the book, but the movie, uh, High Fidelity, mm -hmm. uh, John Cusack uh, pays a visit to uh, Beverly D'Angelo's palatial mansion and her uh, just huge house, this great big estate. And it is almost verbatim exactly what is described in this book, except the twist, it's not a car because of the fact that it's the movie High Fidelity. It's the husband's record collection because it's got to relate somehow to John Cusack or else what are we doing here? What does yeah. he need a Porsche for? And he has all of this rare stuff and it's just so cool. And, you know, it, this stuff, it's 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 worth $50,000 easy, you know, this collection. But he can't buy it for $1 and, and, and it's just not true. But it, there's a ring of, again, plausibility to it because we already know this story. And the writers of the movie, they get to use it because who's going to sue them for, no. for some kind of plagiarism claim? And there's, there's another aspect to this, too, that we talked about societal lessons. There's a moral comeuppance in this story. The yes. man has committed a moral error in cheating on his wife and leaving her. So it's only just that he gets the short end of the stick on that. Exactly. It's a little too perfect. Yeah. But, you know, it's so. funny, though, you mentioned the film aspect of it. When I went, I went to Florida State, uh, 88 to 92, and while I was there, they started up the film school, and I've always been fascinated with film. I didn't have the grades to get into the film school, unfortunately. And um, and it was a four-year <laughs> program. I was a sophomore when they started it, and they that's kind of how they told us. I was taking a screenwriting class as an English 102 substitute. And they announced towards the end of it, hey, guess what? We're finally starting the film school next year, and it's a four-year program. If you guys want in, that's great. But remember, it's a four-year program, which means they're only taking freshmen for next year. But if you have really good grades, we'll let you in. And I was like, oh, crap, that's it for me. So I got to know a lot of those guys, though, and those guys were a lot of my friends. And it, it's funny because they did a thing 
towards the end of those guys' careers at Florida State, they were the first graduating class of the film school, called a BFA right. project, which is Bachelor of Fine Arts project, where mm -hmm. they had to make a film. They literally, students wrote and submitted scripts to the film department. The heads of the film department selected a certain number of scripts to be produced, and then people went in and pitched you know, ideas to be the director and pitch to be the producer and pitch to be, you know, and then from there, the director and producer would go hire the camera crew, you know, and they were given a budget. And so they made movies this way. Hmm, and uh, cool. a lot of my friends were writing. One of my friends was, is currently writing. I just talked to him last week. In fact, he's writing movies for the Hallmark Channel. Oh, cool. um, but his submission that year was, and they were all short films. They had to be, the scripts had to be like 18 to 20 pages. And, hmm. um, but his submission that year was about a guy who meets a girl. They go out. He has a rollicking good time with her and then wakes oh up the next morning and written on his mirror and lipstick is welcome to the world of AIDS. Oh, geez. Well, guess what? That's in this book. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's one of the ones they do. AIDS Mary. Yeah. And the other one that was also one that I read that year. See if you remember this. Another one where a guy meets up with a hot young chick. And uh, they go out. He wakes up the next day in an icy bathtub. Oh, yeah, the organ theft thing. Yes, yes, and that's in there as well. They call it kidney heist in this book. But it's right there. And these are stories that obviously they had known, they had heard about, they had circulated, but they hadn't necessarily read them in a book of urban legends. I don't think most people had read them at that point. This wasn't, you know, culturally, Brunvon was publishing, I guess, in the 70s, but it wasn't really a culturally well-known thing at the time. Right. So when I read that for the first time, I thought, well, that's an interesting twist. Very clever. I wonder where we got that from. And I didn't realize it was, these were stories that were, had been circulating. Yeah. And I, you know, I, <laughs> it's, it's perfect fodder, you know, uh, because, and if you think about it, you know, there's kind of a degree to which this kind of belongs in cinema anyway, because we don't have campfires anymore. We have mm -hmm. movie theaters. No, true. But same basic thing, you know, No, but when but you think about it. Do this, do this favor for me as well, though. Take it back. Let's go back to teaching societal lessons. And this is something that would have reinforced at the time in particular, certain societal norms and mores, which is both of those are kind of strong stories to say, don't go have you know, one-night-stand-type sex people you don't know. Right. And there is that, too. Yeah. And that was a thing. Well. So, so yeah, I guess to move away from Slasher Under the Car, like, what's the uh, next one that you wanted to talk about? Oh, good grief. There are just so many. There are so many. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the vibrating cactus. Uh, what's the page number on that? Oh, you would ask me for the page number on the vibrating cactus. Uh, in here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's go on to something else that I can get to quickly. <laughs> Since we've already kind of discussed some of the other ones in Chapter 1 together, let's talk about the Mexican pet. Okay. The Mexican pet's a favorite. Lady goes down to Mexico, she finds this little dog. Poor dog looks undernourished. Not fed. She takes him in, she feeds him. He gets sick. She brings him home. Remember, remember this one? Yeah. She brings him home, he gets sick all over the place. This poor dog she brought back from Mexico. Mm-hmm. 
Brings it to the vet. Vet says, wait a minute, this is some Mexican sewer rat. This <laughs> is not a dog. <laughs> what you get is now, one of these great things about urban legends. There's no way. I mean, you pass, okay, it, it then, doesn't pass the basic smell test. No, well, it literally, it yeah, doesn't no offense, in this case. Yeah, to the sewer rat, yeah. But, uh, yeah, and that was, and that, and that's actually, it was, it was stories like this. Like, some of these things, they were very well known to me. Some of which were actually very well known to me to be, I'm just going to say it, just totally bogus. Yeah. But this was one that somehow I only heard about after I read this volume. And it's like, I can't help thinking, did this did this volume like unintentionally perpetuate some of these? But do you remember hearing this story like at any time before we actually started studying urban legend lore or, or what? Cause I truly don't think like hand on heart. I ever heard this one before. Uh, the Mexican it's, it's hard. You know, I don't remember having heard it before. No, but a lot of these I hadn't. Uh, and some of them resonate obviously, but, but again, you want to go back to teaching society standards and values and more. Obviously this is saying you better watch what you do in Mexico. Yeah. You know, watch out for that Mexico place. Yeah, and don't drink the water. And don't drink don't drink the water and don't bring the dogs home. Well, and speaking of not passing the smell test. <laughs> yep, yeah, you knew where that was going, didn't you? Yep. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Chris Honeywell. How you doing? I'm doing good. And you know, it's it's. I just gotta say, like the, with the like the conspiratorial sort of tone of this these kinds of shows, I had to update my Skype into the new world order Skype just to get on this show. <laughs> you know what that's about, don't you? <laughs> I think it's all about they want to update it without asking you from now on. I think it's just like Doug said on Black Jeopardy the other night. That's how they get you. <laughs> We'll see. Well, and, and what uh, what Rifen and I have been talking about was the Mexican pet, basically mm-hmm. this old woman that goes to uh, Mexico, and she finds this sick dog and brings it home. A bunch of shit ensues, and then come to find out, whoops, that's that's a Mexican sewer rat. The you sewer know, rat. And yeah, and it was. Um, this is one of those things, and this was going to be my point with Scott. I truly look. Maybe there is somebody out there, and I've just had the pleasure of never meeting this person. But it just seems so unlikely to me that somebody could be so functionally freaking retarded <laughs> that they could mistake a Mexican sewer rat even for a sick dog. You know, I mean, I mean, we're talking like that. That sewer rat must have some stage of Ebola that we just don't have a name for. That's all I can figure. <laughs> Somehow, like overly gigantic or something yeah it it doesn't seem like people would be that stupid but but little lonely old ladies there's an awful lot of there's an awful lot of people so some of them have to be that (laughs) that's right statistically speaking he's correct Mm -hmm. just just from a numbers perspective some of them have to be that stupid well, as, as somebody who's an ardent believer in the bell curve, <laughs> if, it, it stands to reason to me that if there's a an Elon Musk out there somewhere, mm-hmm. there must surely be a Forrest Gump. There must surely be a Charlie Gordy. And mm-hmm. 
not Flash Gordon, uh, Chris, uh, Charlie Gordon. Anyway, so <laughs> there's got to be somebody out there who's just that big a freaking idiot. But I don't know. And like the really scary thing is if, if somebody's stupid enough to mix up a uh, mix up a rat with a dog, this is somebody who's had children. This is somebody who drives a car. This is somebody who votes in elections. That scares the hell out of me, you know? <laughs> but it's Mexico where everything's exotic. He's an exotic dog. Right, right. I don't know. That's how they make the dogs down there. Yeah. Chihuahuas, right? It's yeah. like a chihuahua. Yeah, not not too different. Maybe a little bigger. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> and who knows? They might have given it a little haircut or anything. Although, God knows why you'd want to go to the, you know, the effort to dress up a rat to sell it as a dog. Why not just three dogs, you know? <laughs> There's that, too. But it makes a great... I mean, that was one of the first... Um... Well, I'll tell you why, Chris. Because of the rat breeding, it's a lot of different things you can do. You can breed them for pets. You can breed them for food. You breed them for fur. I mean, it's, you know, it's multi-talented, these things. And may, maybe it wasn't really a rat. Maybe it was one of the, those uh, nutrias or whatever. That, are they nutrias? Is that what they're called? I don't know maybe what the hell that is. Giant, they're basically like a giant rat. They make a lot of, like... I think there was a Seinfeld episode where they were, were making fun of, you know, Kramer had some fur jackets that were actually Nutria instead of, you know, Fox or something. Ugh. And, and then they, they found out eventually, you know, they're, yeah, they're just sort of in the rat family. <laughs> oh, jeez. Next time, just get faux fur, dude. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> well, I mean, as if rat, rat fur is less... Yes, exactly. You, know? you got to kill something. I mean, we don't like rats as much, but, you know, I'm sure the rats would uh, have something to say about it. As would Peta. Yeah, well, Peta's had something to say about everything. <laughs> Basically. Truth. <laughs> this this was like the first um, urban legends I ever heard was the, was the, disease, was the disease sewer rat. See, 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 here we go. Interrogate him, Trent. That, that, that relates to, you know, what I was asking, Scott, before you joined. You know, I never even heard of this until I read uh, this uh, this uh, Urban Legends volume. I never even heard of this. And I thought, well, that doesn't really mean anything. So, And then it was right around then that you crashed the party. So it's good to know you're finally paying that off. So, <laughs> I heard about it, and it must have been the, like late 70s, early 80s, somewhere around there. But, but you know, this also brings another one of your points to mind, which is the, the idea that uh, these stories are, you know, they're, oh, shit, I forgot what my point, what was your point? That my brain went. Nothing about that they were sort of like cautionary tales. Or yeah, no, but but uh, well, sometimes sometimes these stories are a little too perfect. They, yeah, they're, right. they're almost like movie quality in terms of there's a beginning and a middle and an end, and the the end is always a little too ironic or it's a little too just or it's a little too something. Yeah, just perfect in some way. Yeah, that they, that happens on the internet a lot of times. You'll hear a story about some sort of personal encounter that people had. Listen to this person's bravery in this encounter where they told this person off. Or oh, the, the telling the person off stuff drives me nuts. He silenced him in three words, and he, it was never nobody was silenced. And then the and then the subway car broke out into applause. Yeah. <laughs> the story's always 
things like that, you know, and 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 as I walked out, as they walked out of the subway, everybody pulled them up on their shoulders and oh. took them down the street. Oh, I, I remember what my point was earlier, uh, uh, Magnus. I'm sorry about that. You know, one of the things you'd mentioned was whether or not perhaps the Mexican rat story had been further perpetuated by its inclusion in this book. And I have to tell you, I think any time this stuff is published and distributed like this, people will take it as an opportunity to internalize these stories and spew them out themselves. So, and if people like me will just tell them if they see, think they see a sucker. Just yeah. Just giggles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Seriously, why not? You know, yeah. Oh, yeah. You hear somebody who's obviously dumb and talking dumb shit, and go, "Oh, yeah. Well, that's just like the rap from Mexico." Well, you know, and, and let's take that full circle um, back to what we were talking about originally. My uh, my origin story for urban legends was the ankle slasher story, and I remember several years later sitting at Christmas at my grandmother's house and my aunt was just talking about everything in the world because she knows everything and then she started talking about uh, the ankle slashers at the mall because I think some of our cousins were going to go to the mall to the movies the movie theater was open on Christmas and you better watch out because there's somebody under the car with ankles that'll slash your ankles and I said you know that's not true right oh it is true uh, no, it's it's not true. It's an urban legend. It is not true. I read it. I said, where did you read it? In the paper. Which paper? Uh, the Times Union. Now, I know damn good and well she didn't read it in the Times Union because I know damn good and well where the story comes from. But she was so desperate to save face in front of everybody that she made up a source. Yeah. So I would be like, come on, let's get in the car. We're going to the archives of the Times <laughs> Yeah, at the time, there's no real internet. You're right. So uh, yeah, let's. We're, tomorrow morning we're going to be at the library when they open. That story was going around here in Rochester around Christmas time at the malls. Mm-hmm. The 90s. Yeah, this was the early nineties. Specific mall that was like, it was just the mall was going downhill. It was going out of business, and the people were managing it poorly. Mm-hmm. And it was just a legendary, terrible mall to go with. It. Scott Gardner actually worked at the uh, at the video store there when the mall was peaking. But this was post Scott Gardner. When, when once Scott Gardner left that mall, basically it went to shit. And uh, sounds like every, a cautionary tale. <laughs> exactly. Every Christmas after that, you would hear stories about, oh yeah, this Thank is, you. you know, somebody's been under the cars, and and there were stories of like they were, you know, some. The story wasn't they were slashing, but they were. It was even worse. They were clipping your Achilles tendon. <laughs> yeah. That's the one, yeah. Air cutters or something. You so know? he push everything to the left. He'll never. He'll give up the game. Well, and you know, speaking of <laughs> that, you know what that kind of reminded me of actually just now is, I worked in a mall, not very long after September 11th, and I don't know if either of you remember this, but there was this story. And this became like an overnight urban legend. I mean, this is the fastest I'd ever seen anything propagate itself across the entire nation. But it was just there. Somebody had told, some Arab somebody had told his uh, waspy friend, who was a chick, stay away from the mall on such and such a day because bad yes. shit is going to happen. Yes. And, of course, the day comes and goes and jack nothing happens. But... It's like over, and, and to be fair, I mean, post 9-11, the entire country, to say we were keyed up is to, <laughs> wow. Put it a little mildly, yes. Yeah, and so, you know, I can understand how that propagated so fast, but even on that basis, I mean, because, call me crazy, but something tells me that 
the month or so after December the 7th, 1941, people were not necessarily watching Thank you. Out, uh, their strip centers. You can just grab me a bottle? I don't know, their elementary uh, schools and you stuff like that. You're always you know, grabbing bottles of water out of there. Eyes in their teeth, you know, hiding <laughs> in, the, in the bushes and, you know, uh, lurking in the shadows. And stuff. Well, they were. let's not forget two things. One, internment camps. Right. And two, 1941. If you've ever seen the movie, that's what it's about. After that, they believed there were Japanese off the coast all the time, everywhere. Now, we did, I will tell you, again, in my little berg, we had two merchant mariner vessels that were sunk by German subs off the coast, or German U-boats off the coast of our, of Georgia. The, uh, the, the SS Oklahoma and the SO Baton Rouge well, were sunk. Yeah. I, I think I'd heard like there was also some sort of skirmish uh, off um, Oregon, too, at some point hmm. in World War II. I had no idea that it was. Uh... I don't think people could. People could be just as paranoid or stuff, but I don't think they could whip themselves up as efficiently as we can today. We, if, if you want to start something that's going to whip people up, it's literally instantaneously everywhere now that we have the internet. You don't have to like slowly leak the story into the and get the story into the paper or you know orally from person to person. You can just you know you can get it out there on Facebook, and there you go. You know so if whether it's real or not, but people can whip themselves up in a mass manner. I think a lot easier these days. Yeah, one, another experience I had with a, with an urban legend before I knew what they were was my freshman year in college and uh, my roommate came home and his girlfriend had a friend who told her that uh, there was a psychic on Oprah who had predicted that there was going to be a massacre at a major college campus on Halloween night and the campus was near a graveyard, etc, etc, etc and so of course that meant it might well be us. That that was just about every college campus yep. in the country. It was yes, absolutely, and uh, and that one has circulated, and that's one that Brunvond has documented over the years. And and I fell victim to it. I stayed holed up in my room. I'd locked that door that night. My roommate went and stayed at somebody else's place because he could. I didn't have any friends, so I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I just stayed on the phone with my parents all night. Oh, Mom, Dad, I'm, I love you. <laughs> if they find me somewhere, I'll have them ship me back home. But uh, now the weird part about that was that a couple of years later, a couple of years later, not I mean, still while I was at college, I was at Florida State, in UF, they did have something of a massacre. They had a serial killer. And this guy, yeah, I mean, this guy was taking students and decapitating them and, you know, everything else. And he, oh yeah, yeah, it was massive. You can look that one up. Uh, but that was a couple of years later and it wasn't Halloween and it wasn't a massacre in one night. This guy, was, I think he took four or five people out before they finally got him. But, uh, and I remember they arrested the wrong guy at first, I think, which was even weirder. Oh my God. Correct police force, I guess. <laughs> yeah, Dan, yeah, Danny Rowling, the Gainesville Ripper. There were five students. That's how many there were. Yep. Wow. Yep. So just down the road, and of course, a lot of people who knew me did still to this day. I had somebody suggest to me this weekend. They thought I, oh, an old friend of mine said, oh yeah, you, when you guys were in Gainesville, you guys are partied pretty hard. I'm like, I didn't go to Gainesville. I was in Tallahassee. 
And they, yes, they did party pretty hard. But, uh, yeah, so then, you know, that put a bit of a fear into us. Yes, exactly. Uh, but if you read up on that one, it's it's pretty foul. And that came, you know, that was one that made us panic up there. Why, I don't know, because the serial killer, you know, obviously was focused around that school and not ours. But, you know, I guess the proximity was enough. Well, when, when I first, when I was first in college and, um, it wasn't a, it didn't end up like putting a lot of fear into the college because it was mostly hookers that were getting killed, but our town had a serial killer going, <laughs> which was pretty creepy, you know? Yeah. Then when they ended up catching him, of course, everybody, every, everybody knew him. I actually, one of my friends actually lived right next door in the apartment next door to him. Wow. And no, no, wait, wait, don't tell me. Let me guess. He was the nicest guy. You know, he always said good morning, and, and he, he always, yep. and he founded Earth you know, Day. What is up with that? You know, like <laughs> the the creepy. If you're going to be a serial killer, you'd probably want to cover up. You got to blend in. You don't want to look like the guy who. That's why I think most of the like creepy. The, the, you look at somebody, you go like, "That guy's a serial killer." They're probably not a serial killer. No, no. Remember, you know, turning things back around to Florida State. Remember, Ted Bundy was charming. Ted Bundy was handsome. Ted Bundy was charming people after he was in prison for being a serial killer. Yeah. Women, women throwing themselves at him. Yeah, exactly. So, although I guess I should probably say at this point that we're not doing the big book of serial killers. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm surprised there wasn't a big book of serial killers. Why, yeah, why wouldn't there have been? The 90s were a serial killer. Everybody was into it. There were serial killer trading cards in the 90s, I remember, and serial killer movies. Well, you remember Millennium, which was a show that, that basically had with it the premise that they, they could find 22 serial killers in Seattle every year. Jeez. <laughs> I mean, wasn't that basically the premise of the show? There's a serial killer every week, and all they were ever in was a Seattle? I was just gonna say that's that I've never seen that show, but yeah, it's like all, wasn't there? There was some show also about like a profiler or something too. That was, there was a show. Yes, there was. And yeah, in the '90s, it was Seven was a big movie, and and uh, Seven was sort of on the tail end of the serial killer movies too. And there yeah. it was like serial ki- everything was serial killer movies and heroin addict movies. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, train spotting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. train spotting. Train spotting was what, like right in the middle, and there was, uh, yeah, there was. Pulp Fiction. Um, oh, what was that? There was one with Matt Dillon. Oh, Drugstore Cowboy. Drugstore Cowboy was was humongous, and then there was the one uh, by the guy who directed the Black Swan. That Aaron, um. Oh, the uh, this is the Jennifer Connelly movie. It has a really nice title to it. I, I yeah. The title makes it sound like a really good... Oh, what is the name of that? It's got Jennifer Connelly completely degrading herself in that movie. It's got everybody. Yeah. <laughs> everybody in that movie. Like, the guy's living with his mother, and she's like a pill addict. and, and Requiem for a Dream. Yes. Yes. And, and, and all the, like, copies of all those movies that came out, too. Like, the million Pulp Fiction copies and, and everything. So. And there were those. Absolutely, those. And speaking of serial killers, of course, we also have the babysitter and the man upstairs. Yes. That also brings us to making a movie about urban legends. Which I've never seen, but I thought was a great concept for a movie. 
But I was pro- I was like, yeah, they're probably going to mess it up. <laughs> and indeed they did. Well, they did it twice now. It's been done, well, at least twice. Because they did When a Stranger Calls in the 70s, and then he did it again uh, a couple of years ago. Oh, I thought you meant the movie Urban Legend. I, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. Um, hmm, okay, now that's rather embarrassing. So, oh, sorry. The man upstairs. Uh, let's... <laughs> now, you know what I'm talking about. That's the Who's Watching the Children story. Yeah, it's, it's uh, or a stranger in the house, too. Yeah, when a stranger calls. Yeah. You know, for some reason, every time I read this story, you know, you get to the part of, oh my God, he's in the house, get out, get out, get out. I don't know why, but this always seems like something I would have seen in a Hitchcock movie, and as far as I know, this was never in any Hitchcock movie, but it, it's no. like it could have been. I don't know. Or maybe just an episode of Hitchcock Presents. It could that have been. was a great friggin' show. Yes, it was. I've seen a couple of episodes of that. Dude, it holds up. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt. They, that... they knew how to write short-form um, TV in, in, in those... Like, right now we're in the renaissance of long-form TV, but back yep. in those days, the Twilight Zone, almost any of those... Uh, anthology shows, whether they were just dramas or something, boy, that the writing is so. I've I went through a little phase like a couple months ago where I, I started. I, I don't think I, it was even Twilight Zone. It was Outer Limits or something, and then I just started on this whole like, you know, bouncing from video to video on YouTube of all these old um, '70s dramas. A lot of them written by Rod Serling. Yep. That were just amazing, you know, in, in a 25-minute piece, or sometimes they were an hour long, they would get this whole story, and so on, with minimal amounts of sets, and and uh, not relying on excessive, you know, um, exposition, just amazing, and, and th- that would end and tie up. Yeah, and and uh, I, I think there was only one season of The Twilight Zone that had hour-long episodes. Everything else was 30 minutes. But I'll tell you, you know what I think part of the difference there is, too? And that is back then, a 30-minute a show was essentially at least 25 minutes of content. Whereas right. now, it's 21 and a half. And so, I mean... That's a, that's a huge difference. Yeah, you can't tell a story, obviously. You know, you can't tell those stories in 21 and a half minutes. You know, an hour-long drama, which used to be 54... You know, you go get your old Star Treks, I think they're 54 minutes. Uh, they're now 41 and a half minutes. And that's a huge drop-off. It may not sound like much, but that's a big difference. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's like a little short film just, just uh, left out that you have to... Yeah. And, and you've, you've still got to tell a story around it. Yeah, and that's actually something that always kind of made me curious. Wow, we are really way off topic. <laughs> But it did kind of make me wonder. Called me in. <laughs> you know, with um, three times, with uh, I guess Star Trek and syndication. You know, I like syndicating Star Trek in the '60s and the '70s, maybe even the '80s. No big deal. But there comes a point when, dude, you got to start ch- chopping stuff out because you can't have like a 50 or 55 minute episode. No. Of TOS. You just can't do it. Nope. Not anymore. Unless you go to an hour 15 or an hour and a half. And and even that, I would think, has got to be unprofitable, but I don't know. So, yeah. 
but you know, and and next gen, you know, just to give you a, a kind of a apples to apples comparison, next gen episodes were, I believe, forty seven minutes. So they had, even then, you would be losing a lot with a lot of those episodes. Yeah, yeah but if you watch, uh, if you were actually to watch a season of twenty four straight through, it would be more like sixteen. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's true. <laughs> That, that, that's what they should do. If they want to get a little revival of 24, just do 24, the commercial, t- what happened during the commercial. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> that, that'd be a whole, that would be an entire series, yeah. yeah so that's eight hours worth of content. And they just do all the seasons into one season, so. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they could fit that all into it. <laughs> That's why the new Star Trek is going to drop. I it sounds like you know they're going to do the Netflix thing, whatever channel it is that they're doing. CBS. Yeah, they're going to you know drop a season of it. Yeah, so supposedly. If, now. if they ever get it worked out. Stuff like Daredevil and um, Trailer Park Boys and the, the shows that just sort of exist. Well, those both exist on Netflix. You'll see an episode of uh, Daredevil, not so much. Daredevil will sometimes be under an hour, sometimes be a little over an hour. Trailer Park will sometimes be 45 minutes to an hour and 20 minutes. You know, they just film whatever they need to for the episode and put it up. They don't care about it being a... It doesn't have to be any particular length at all. That's what she said. (laughs) No. it, no, you're right. It doesn't have to be, and they actually do our shows. And sometimes, like you said, if they have, if they tell the story they have to tell. Yeah, they're only limited really by their budget. Yeah, if it, if it has to go an hour five, it goes an hour five, and nobody really complains about that. Oh, I'm sure we can find. Oh, especially with something like Daredevil. In this day and age, yeah, that's true. Once again, it's a lot of people out there. <laughs> Statistically speaking, for everyone who loves it. I, I'm thinking about writing a book about that, about like, just just the whole book will be about how many people there are in the world. And if you want to find somebody saying anything, you can. Yes, and the internet has helped us locate those people. The internet can expand that. So, <laughs> like how could people be that stupid it's like well that's one person you know that 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 stupid person is statistically out of every six million people so yeah we've got a you know we've got well, six million people into 300 300 million yeah. yeah we got we got a we got a few of them wandering around the streets you know or wandering around the internet streets. absolutely i mean we live in the golden age of here I, I'm going to bring it all back. We live in the because of the internet, the golden age of urban legends. Well, and that's why Snopes has become so prominent. And like you said earlier, Magnus, I don't like to give Snopes a lot of props and a lot of credit, but sometimes they were the only place I could turn to debunk some of these things when I knew for a fact they were urban legends. Well, my, uh, when, when Snopes was dealing with actual urban legends, and yeah. even now when they deal with actual urban legends, I think they're actually pretty reliable. But yeah. the minute they start talking, their scope about is expanded. <laughs> yeah, well, I would say anything kind of controversial in politics is probably the best example. Well, politi- they're only human, and they're going to be as biased well, as anyone else. There's very little truth in politics, though. 
And and they're supposed to be truth seekers, and that's part of the problem. Is uh, a lot of it depends on your particular morals and values, and you know your particular thoughts and feelings. And so again, what is right within a certain context of someone is not necessarily true. Right, and and the way I usually like, bet, and that's that's the thing is you got to vet Snopes too. Yeah, and the way the the way I vet like. And especially this year, 2016 political election year, the way mm-hmm. I bet it is, the thing about Snopes is they show their work. So when they do something political, I go, okay, what, what's the work they're showing? And they're and they're honest about what they show, but then you can see, okay, you know, they're 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 taking it in this. They're saying, okay, what this person said is true, but they only took it so far with what they meant by true, you know, from a certain point of view. Yeah, they, well, well, they'll be, they'll, 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 or they'll just stick. Well, let's just say I won't even name names, but they were like, say, okay, this political candidate is true. This many is telling the truth. This many, this percentage of the time, which is, yeah, you're not gonna, you can't quantify that. No. And so what you look at it, and as they looked through it, and they looked at all the places where the people um, named statistics. And whether those statistics lined up to the real statistics, and, and that's how they determined them lying. Well, there's so many other things and nuances and ways to tweak something and lie about it in politics. Yep. Be a liar that statistically you could be right on the money, or or just when somebody brings it up, you can say, oh, well, you know, this number, this, and be right. But you could still be nuanced. You could still be, you know, shoving that thing around to to make it into an untrue statement with all your your numbers lined up. So, you know, but but when it comes to you know sea monster found on the shore of on the Jersey Shore, that's Snopes's, you know, almost a hundred percent reliable. Yeah, when you find out when you ask the question, uh, you know, well, uh, I heard that uh, going and using a tanning bed would microwave your insides if you did it too much. That we can go quantify. That's an urban legend. That's called Curses Broiled Again in this book. Yes. And, you know, the thing is, that, again, is one of those stories that I remember hearing when I was a kid and mm-hmm. thinking, there's just no freaking way. There is no <laughs> way that is true. But it's Otherwise, it's Beverly morale. Hills would be a ghost town. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, a morale, it's another morality one of, of va- you know, anti-vanity. Yeah. Basically. And and it's a class warfare one as well because you know who gets particularly back in the day who got tanned who had access to tanning beds the rich, 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 rich being people yeah yeah and that's what, the thing it wasn't always the the girls from Jersey Shore yeah. no well they spray theirs on ah okay oh. that's the difference yeah well I'm sure they'll all be getting cancer from inhaling the fumes of. <laughs> One way or another, if there's a chemical in your life, you'll get cancer. That's the message of today. I mean, there's a human desire to see those, to the, to see and believe those stories. Yeah. You know, to, to, you know, confirmation bias or whatever. Or it just makes you feel good to think that somebody you don't like is getting their due or, or that somehow the universe is balancing things out. For everything, those stories, you know, feed right into that desire. Yep, and that's to me, that's kind of the, the these things fit into a couple of different categories, and one is the stories that do kind of help reassure people who are involved in in class warfare or, or uh, you know the separate people or, or the cautionary tales or the other ones. Again, where people 
you know, try to get you to behave a certain way because if you do not, here are the consequences. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, the blind date. The guy goes to the pharmacist nervously and, you know, hey, uh, you, uh, I got a date tonight. Uh, you know, I'm looking for something. To con- uh, and the uh, pharmacist, hey, that's what you want, pulls out the condoms. Ah, well, good luck, young man. Kid leaves, goes. Later that night, shows up for his blind date. Dad answers the door. It's the pharmacist! Hey! (laughs) (laughs) And again, you know, like stories like that, I remember hearing them when I was a kid, and there was, they were, this is one of those that didn't set off my my BS filter. I kind of found that easy to believe, you know? That maybe it's just because I was finally starting to buy condoms for the first time, but it's just, it's just how stressful that could be. God, that was stressful. Yeah, and, you know, this idea that, you know, what if... And, and, and actually, in my case, it really wouldn't have come to that because, thankfully, her father stressful. was not... Oh, my God, I was so happy to be gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like the thing was, thankfully, her father was not a pharmacist, so I guess that's the good news. No, a preacher. The the not so good news is that he was in fact a cop. So I don't. Oh. Yeah, I don't know if that's exactly better, but you know, hey, what can you do? And the, I guess the the stress of it, you know, the uncertainty. You know, do, do I have to ask for an extra large just on principle here? I mean, how exactly does all this work anyway, you know? Like, wait, do I need a doctor's note? No, I don't need a doctor's note. No. You know, and those stupid, stupid questions that you ask yourself, but it's part of the, it's part of how it goes, I guess. Absolutely. I just always figured that the pharmacist was like the doctor's office, that they saw everything, and that if I went up there and bought cops, condoms it had to be like way down on the list of things that like unusual thing, unusual or disturbing things that they, they said so I figured that it was just like such a common transaction and I was right they were just like oh here you go and I was like oh okay <laughs> I like how that works <laughs> Put me back, maybe about 10 years older and it might have been even uh, a little bit more awkward because but I mean by the time well, by the time I was in high school, college, they still were behind the, the counter. Well, I would go into someplace like uh, Rite Aid. Yeah, I don't know if you have Rite Aids down there. You know, someplace like, you know, a drugstore. They just have a wall of them. You know? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, you don't, you don't need, even need to go there. Just go to Exxon or something. They sell them there. And it's not, it might be more mortifying now because you don't have somebody who has, like, a semi-medical college degree looking at it who thinks that, you know... You know, the, those people are, like, talking to people with, like, horrible running sores and stuff. But instead, nowadays, you got to plop your purchase down in front of some, like, teenager, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or, or actually... Yeah, extra, extra small. <laughs> or, or the other thing is, like, you have jerks like me who are waiting in line behind you who are saying, look, those things can be extremely tricky to use, woman. So if you need, like, a demonstration... On how to use them. <laughs> I'm willing to do. You know, I want you to know I am willing to help. You. I'm, you know, I'm trying to help the team here, and and she's like, yeah, whatever. Just and but I've I've done that a few times just because it is so easy to do. You know, just to kind of 
Now, you know, you don't want to ruin anyone's night or anything, but, you know, just embarrass them a little bit. Why not? You know, it's the American way. Well, see, in high school, it was embarrassing to get them, to seek them out, to look for them. But in college, you would go down to the student union, and they'd give you a bucket of them. Yeah, they'd just toss them over. To yeah. Get they'd throw them out at parades at the homecoming parade. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, bar. They're, they're... I know three bars here in Rochester that have a bucket of them by the door. <laughs> Good Lord. Well, and like that was, it, it's kind of funny. Like the only time, like in my adult life, I can really remember like being kind of embarrassed about it was it was one of those gas stations that's located in a part of town. that's actually really nice that whoever owns it insists on keeping it open 24 hours, but locking it after a certain time because. So you have to go talk to a little window and be like, yeah. I need and the Trojans ribbed. Yeah. Ribbit. And, uh, yeah, I need the Magnums, too, by the way, if you got them. And there was this just chick who was drunk off her ass. Trentus Magnum punches reality. <laughs> yeah, well, pretty much. <laughs> no, donkey punches reality. Mm. Donkey punches reality. I'm sorry, donkey punches reality. And this chick, it's like, it's, she had, like, no concept of, like, personal space. And so she kept, like, stroking my back and, like, rubbing up against me and stuff. And it's like, I'm about to knock you in the middle of next week, woman, if you don't back <laughs> up, like, a good three feet here, you know? And, you know, when I finally managed to place my order, she's like, yeah! <laughs> and, oh, my, that that really was embarrassing. And she actually started, like, taking off her, her gear and stuff, like, behind me. And I was like, okay, time to go. <laughs> Eek! Yeah. Fun times. <laughs> <laughs> so, if we're done with embarrassing stories, how about those urban legends, guys? <laughs> well, I thought, the you with the, I thought you with the Magnums was an urban legend. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of the good ones. I mean, you know, and again, the sex ones all tend to be societal reinforcements uh the blind man that's always a good one the woman's naked huh the blind man yeah the woman's naked she's taking a shower whatever it's on page uh 138 of the book oh okay. uh the guy knocks at the door said well i can't answer the door he said well it's, uh, who is it it's a blind man oh okay well i'll answer the door naked doesn't matter he's blind she opens the door and it's a guy who's installing blinds in the windows and he just got a free treat yeah yeah <laughs> Well, you know, and like the thing is, that actually leads into something else. Um, people are actually, well, I think they are starting to do it. They have been doing it. They've been doing that like on purpose. Like I, when I was doing uh, pizza deliveries, like there were women who would answer the door like just butt ass naked, you know? Really? And, yeah, they were doing that on purpose. And I've seen, you know, videos. It's not like there's anything special about, about me. They do this to pizza guys, basically anyone who's going to knock on the door and just wait yeah. there to, to give them their stuff. So to speak, and you get a lot of guys in bathrobes too, with the bathrobe slightly ajar, just like ah, oh, <laughs> caught me in an awkward moment. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's I don't. I, this is one of those things that I I just cannot get my head around the idea of wanting to other like a total stranger to see you and you're all together. You know, I mean, no. it's some sort of mental, com uh, you know, it's some sort of psychological aberration compulsion that they had. They're exhibitionists and and weirdos, you know. 
and with people who work in those kinds of jobs are the ones who get to meet all the, those people because those people know that they've got a captive audience. Literally. True. Yeah, they, they, they have a cat, and like if you have it, whether like sometimes I've heard lots of stories of you know the lone clerk behind in you know the lone clerk in a tiny shop behind the counter and that's you know somebody will come in and do something you know really weird because they know that person's sort of stuck there and is going to have to watch them do whatever it is they want them to see them do yep and, and you know these guys well, they can call up somebody and have them do it and you know I mean I mean the average pizza guy that shows up at the door if you're a woman you show up naked or whatever no matter how hideous you are they're not going to go back and like call the cops or something like that they're going to go back and go like guys <laughs> you know what just happened yeah yeah it's it. when is when is sexual assault not sexual assault yeah so yeah i mean it, 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 if you wanted to call the cops and say this person sexual sexually assaulted me or whatever you probably could but it's now I don't know how that gets in with like female delivery people, <laughs> you know. Why have you seen some of those female delivery people? Are there? Actually, that's about as far as I probably need. They to might go. get more disturbed by having a guy, you know, a, a guy going up and having, you know, you know, a drunk middle-aged woman, woman, naked, as opposed to a female delivery guy with, you know, some burly guy in his his dirty bathrobe. Yeah, it might be a different range of emotions evoked. Well, and, and, you know, and maybe it's just the fact that I live in Texas where, like, everybody has CHL here, but you really don't want to mess with the, the women around here because they'll fucking shoot you. you know, no, no warning shots, you know, no, no nothing. They'll just blow your brains out, you know, just don't mess with them. And I have to figure that's got to be probably doubly true of our, I mean, to whatever degree we have female pizza delivery drivers. It's got to be doubly true of them. I mean, they've got to know what they're up against. You know, I would think if anybody's packing heat. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wonder about that. It, it probably depends on, well, it depends on what state you're in. And it probably depends on, because I, I, I don't know. I've never heard of, I, I, I don't know how, say, Domino's would, you know, corporate Domino's would would go on a policy of having their, their, their delivery people carry guns. They, you know, it, it, it could ha- it could legally happen in the state, but I could see the companies being like, oh, what if we shot the wrong person and got sued?" And well, that's not we theoretical. Said, shot the right person and got sued, <laughs> which has happened. And, you know, they're, they're they're mostly thinking about getting sued for yeah. anything for any reason. Well, and something like that happened at the Domino's near my old house where somebody tried to rob the place and unbeknownst to them the cashier had chl and so he just pulled his gun out and uh you know the guy it's like i guess he panicked or something he tried to point his gun back and then dropped it and so by accident it just kind of slipped out of his hands and the cashier blew him into the next life he ended up for a time he ended up being fired and then public outcry said he didn't do anything wrong because this is texas he didn't do anything wrong and so because of pressure the local franchise really they had no choice except to hire him back so Uh and um well that place probably has not gotten robbed since 
Yeah, well, uh, you know, one would hope not. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, if I ran a pizza shop that somebody tried to hold up, I'd actually put a little notice out front saying to armed robbers, you know, or potential armed robbers or what have you, we've already gotten one of you. And this have like a little laminated copy of the news, the newspaper that documents the story. We got, we got one of you already. Do you really want to try your luck? I like that it. would be my worked in like convenience stores and usually the in a corporate convenience store the policy is if someone robs you don't do anything just give them all the money and yep you know it's not worth it just yep don't chase them don't do anything yeah take we'll take the hit we just don't want anybody to get shot you know blah blah blah. so that's usually the policy in that yep yeah when it's a privately owned business yeah you can have all sorts of different pol- i mean i've walked into private businesses that have had like you know signs up that like Owner's a proud, you know, proudly carrying his gun all the time, and he's watching you. And then you look down from the side, and he's sitting there watching. You. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, in New York State, we have places like that. So, speaking of guns and sex and urban legends, let's talk about the bullet through the balls, page one twenty-eight. Yes, let's. That's uh, <laughs> that's a good one. And this is one you do hear a lot. This is the. Uh, the women going out, because I guess when they'd have these battles, you know, it would be in, in places where people lived. And the women would go out to assist uh, the, the soldiers and such. And so the woman brings her daughters out to assist with the uh, the soldiers in the battle. And uh, there's a shot that goes through one of the soldiers, carries away one of his testes yeah, as one of his one of his soldiers um goes through the house penetrates the abdomen of one of the daughters nine months later she has a baby it's amazing and everybody's like oh who'd you sleep with who'd you go and run around and she's like no i'm a virgin really nothing ever happened and then a few weeks after the child is born they take it to the doctor because there's something hard under her skin and the doctor pulls out the mini ball the bullet that went through the soldier's scrotum and lodged itself carrying sperm into the woman's ovary yeah <laughs> And I, I just love I love the panel at the very end of this page. The father and the son have got the exact same expression. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> Everybody looks either stern or shocked. You know that's the face you would make. Well, these were the days before DNA tests, too, so you just gotta take your word for it <laughs> yep. at that point. <laughs> <laughs> the, the story, that, that, that's the point where the story becomes too perfect is where they're like, and then the baby had a bullet in it, you know. It's, it's like, <laughs> that's, that's how that would work. <laughs> well, see, and, and... That's how baby making works. But if that happened, wouldn't wouldn't there have been a religion spring up around this woman or something? Yeah, and, I think so. Well... I mean, she mysteriously virgin. She knows she's a virgin. She can, you know, show she's a virgin if somehow. The, if they shot the gun into the sky... I'm not even going to explain what you just said because I think I got it but I don't want to say it (laughs) 
if it's just some slob soldier on the field, that's it's kind of miraculous in the odds department, but you know. Well, I'm just saying, I, I don't know that the baby's probably not going to go up to the. Uh, but let let's just. Let's just find a way this could realistically have happened. And one of those I think we would agree is you don't find the bullet. So she has the baby. You don't find the bullet. Isn't that cause for religion somewhere? Yeah, except... Yeah. <laughs> if, 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 the, thing, the thing about it is... is yeah, it, 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 If I were, like, her father or something, I'd be squashing that idea. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, okay, we don't want to pass that by the, the village elders, you know. No, true. <laughs> think, think about that one, you know. I've never lain with a man. Yeah. Sure, you've never lain with a man. That would, and, and, her, and her bullet wound could be taken as some sort of, like, stigmata sort of thing. <laughs> well, I don't know if you call stigmata down in the pelvic area or wherever it would be. <laughs> well, no, they did, didn't they stab Jesus in the side with a sword? They did, oh. There you go. Yeah. It could be stigmata. Yeah. So, yeah. So, the fact <laughs> that there isn't a religion around that debunks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's why we know it's not true. <laughs> Besides physics and all of the medicine <laughs> we know about, yeah, medicine. Medicine and science, yeah. That Dollar guns floating here outside my house. I don't know if you guys are picking that up. Yeah. yeah I, I, I can hear it. You know what the cause of that is, don't you? Yeah, he's got two fingers in his throat. <laughs> oh, jeez. Wow, that went dark. No, 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 no. So I was doing the uh, the choking Doberman. Oh, Another one of our stories. All right. <laughs> Alright, so what's the uh, Choking Doberman sounds like a horrible euphemism for a terrible sexual act. <laughs> <laughs> he executed a flawless choking Doberman. <laughs> well, he lost like, he lost a point on style. <laughs> <laughs> and that damn Russian judge. You always lose a point for style of the choking That's Doberman. That's right, that's right. You can't do a choking <laughs> Doberman. It's a risky and bold move. <laughs> if it weren't for the Russian judge, he'd have been okay. Well, i got to say, this guy's confident. <laughs> Nobody has ever performed a triple choking Doberman in the history. <laughs> Right, but I haven't talked to you in a long time. I know, I know. I was thinking about how much I've missed this. I, for, I forgot to get this gross. <laughs> <laughs> I only take half the responsibility. Well, I must ask, you know, like at what point your podcasting career becomes a threat to your broadcasting career? Uh... You know, it's funny you say that, because I was talking to Ryan of Dinner for Geeks fame the other day. You've heard of that podcast, I'm sure. A thing or two of it. And, uh, and we were talking about the uh, the Trump tape from the uh, the Access Hollywood tape. And oh, I, yeah, and, by the labia. Yeah, and, and I don't think he said labia. And uh, 
I think I said something along the lines of he started saying, well, you know, God help us if any of us ever run for president. I thought, well, I don't, I don't really have any skeletons in my closet. And then he kind of went, dude, you've got 140 episodes of skeletons in your closet. So <laughs> all they've got to do is grab dinner for geeks out, and you're done. I was like, oh. But, uh, you know, the thing is, in, in all of my podcasting, I will say this. I am honest. So you get what you pay for. In this case, nothing. And luckily, Dinner for Geeks doesn't sound like the place you would go to dig up dirt on somebody. <laughs> no. And, 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 and like if you had people, like you just have to hope that by the time it went dark in your Dinner for Geeks, it was like an hour and a half in so they didn't get past yeah. the ultra fine, you know, fine detailed, they hear fine detailed Star Wars. What are you Star talking about? The episode titles alone are kind of big. There's an episode title of one of those, of one Dinner for Geeks, and it was a, he was fellatiate. Well, that's a title you can't walk away from, I'm sorry. In fact, I would dare say that any journalist who can walk away from that, you're just not in Any political opinions of Trump aside, though, he has done a great service to, like, say, Scott Rifen's future podcast um yeah i can't uh, i don't political future it, we're, we're living in a post state where it's like okay yeah he did you, you did say that but <laughs> yeah but <laughs> i didn't say this yeah and and to my it's and by, like if somebody on uh, on tv gets their finger cut off and people are like oh my god that's awful you, you can't say that after walking dead is mashed two heads on tv yeah so and let me just say in my defense, the term fellatiating came out of Jeff's mouth, not mine. And if you run so and they use dinner for geeks as, as like the bludgeon point of view, <laughs> I don't know. I like that show. I have a feeling that like, and, and I, and when I listen to that show, I think, I, I think to myself, well, I don't, I don't consciously think that to myself. But I'm thinking that to myself now. It doesn't have a political skew to it. No. So what? if all of a sudden we're running for, we're running for. Well, I, I'm, I'm saying is appeal wise, it's not going to make anybody run away from politics unless that person's already really like going to run away from anything. Yeah, we try to stay. Opinion. We try to stay somewhat apolitical. Yeah. Right, right. But what what I'm saying is, if if all of a sudden you know you're running for office and they start talking about dinner for geeks. You might just end up with a huge dinner for geeks audience, and you might have people going like, yeah, "I kind of like this guy." <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, I, I think it could actually work work for you, you know, more than against you. They're probably right. But nobody, you don't see anybody hiring me as a political advisor. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. I mean, I can't speak for anyone else, and God knows I can't speak for the listening audience. But one thing at least that I have been long waiting for is Chris Honeywell to announce his 2020 uh, presidential campaign, you know, and just the amount of dirt that Kanye West. Yeah, I was going to say, if Kanye did it, why can't Chris? And, you know, like the amount of dirt that you know would would surface from all of that, you know, there was this one time that we saw Chris Honeywell sacrificing a cat. Well, well, yeah. He didn't. 
but that was a story that he himself told just to kind of fuck with people because yeah, I tell stories like that about myself or about Chris all the time. Well, you know what's I mean, funny? I've already podcasted about my felony. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> that's true. I helped and you out with that episode. Yeah. <laughs> and my entire drug history. Yes, know, so that's, that's the one I helped you out with. And I would, yes, and I would, yeah, that's right, you were doing all the this. podcast. Just to be clear, he helped with the podcast. Yeah, no, no, I didn't help him with his drug history, no. I helped him, I was the, I was the title announcer for each chapter. Which, which added so much. Contrast <laughs> <laughs> to the stories. But, yeah, I, A, I don't, I'd rather wash dishes <laughs> than, than be a Damn it, man, your country needs you. Yeah. <laughs> well, if <laughs> you get what you deserve. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I have a feeling that the president that we need, not the one that we deserve, but you're what we need. Yeah. <laughs> if, hey, if, if there's a, a, a large enough grassroots up surgeons for it, I might get my old um, puppet rabbit out and run him for president, right? Nice. Right? What, what? Are you sick of all the other puppets? Well, here's a puppet that doesn't doesn't hide the fact that he's a puppet. And see, I'm puppet blind. I wouldn't know the difference. Who's hands manipulating him? <laughs> the thing is, you know what? That kind of open up uh, opens up a sort of an interesting rhetorical possibility. My hand is the one that's controlling this puppet today. Tomorrow, right, it'd be yours. Right, I leave it in your hands. See, this shit writes itself. Yeah, and I, I think, I think this is the beginning of the description of a choking Doberman, if I'm not mistaken. choking Doberman. Yeah. By 2028, America will be transformed to every four years. It'll be the passing of the puppet. <laughs> That will probably be the next president after President Camacho, which, <laughs> in all honesty, we ain't that far away from now. That movie was so hopeful by putting it 500 years in the future. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so optimistic. That's what people are like, what a dystopian movie. And I'm like, no, That's it's documentary asshole. Yeah. It's, it's totally optimistic because it's 500 years in the future, not... Yeah, it ain't going to take us that long to get there. We're catching up to it way fast, you know. That's like telling me the store around the corner is 500 miles away. No, it's right there. <laughs> yeah, and anyway, uh, so, uh, the choking Doberman, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Magnus trying to get this thing somewhat back. The choking Doberman. The choking Doberman. Page 36 of your hymnal. And that's that's one of the classics. That's one that uh, uh, Brunvond actually wrote a book and named it after this story. It's so profound, and it so happens so much. And that is the uh, the woman comes home to her dog. Her dog is hack hack hack, cough cough cough, choke choke choke. Oh, what's going on? So she takes him over to the vet, and the vet's like, "All right, we'll do what we can. We don't know something's wrong." They call up. They're like. Uh, Hey, he's fine, but hang up the phone. Get out of the house right now. Go to the neighbors. So she goes over there. The vet comes back with the policeman. And what he found choking the Doberman? Two human fingers. And the guy was still there in the closet. 
in there on the door. Yeah, there's some interesting symbolism there, isn't it? Yes. In the closet. I mean, again, we're reinforcing, at least at the time, societal norms. Yep. Absolutely. A lot of symbolism. That was also the time period where Do- where Dobermans were. Yeah, there's that were the bad dog of choice. Yeah, that's right. It, nobody this talked is... about Rottweilers. No, nope. you know any of the, those German dogs that German happen. Shepherds had already passed. Pit bulls weren't on the horizon. And we hadn't gotten yeah to Rottweilers yet. Yeah. Yeah, the Rottweiler was after the Doberman. Plus, the Dobermans were in the boys from Brazil. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a good point. And it was about right after that that they had the reputation of... of we had a neighbor who got a Doberman because he wanted a, a, a badass dog. Yep. Yeah, well, be careful. Well, yeah, this dog was... This dog, basically, they had to keep him chained with a thick chain to a tree, and the dog was going to kill anybody that wasn't... <laughs> And they had to get rid of the dog because the dog was a little too into the family. Like, the daughter was in their basement, and the dog smashed through the basement window to get in to, to hang out with the daughter. Good and grief. Like, yeah, and then they were like, okay, we can't keep this dog. But and then they got... Because the guy raised... That's the dog you should like. The guy purposely raised that dog to be like that. Yeah. And you can raise any dog to be like that. Sure. You know, the Dobermans, the German Shepherds. The German Shepherds are the ones, they, they're lucky they got it over with. The, the, they're the ones, I think, that are the most dangerous, potentially, if you want to trade them, because they're smart. smart That's they're true. Like the, I think they're the smartest of the dogs, whatever. Those are the ones you don't want to train to be a supervillain. No, that's well. Those are all the. I mean, the bulk of your drug dogs and that kind of thing are, and that's you know, you can teach them to give false yeah. positives. They're pretty smart. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other, that's a whole other yes, discussion. <laughs> but yeah, no, that was uh, we we actually had a uh, there's a little farm next door to the radio station. Believe it or not, in fact, in fact, there's a farm to the point that one day I was doing my show and I looked out the window and there was a chicken and a turkey walking through the backyard of this radio station. <laughs> I just kind of look. There's a turkey back here, big turkey, and. Uh, but they, they picked up a Rottweiler at one point, and the Rottweiler kept sneaking away from the farm and coming over to see us. And this big old Rottweiler was... Uh, not, not Yeah, Rottweiler. It was a Rottweiler. Because the Rottweiler's the big, thick ones. Dobrins are skinny. Uh, and this Rottweiler, he was the sweetest dog. He was such a... He was just so gentle and, and fun, and uh, he'd come play with us, and, you know, we'd, we'd take a break and go outside and play around with him, and, you know, then we'd call him and say, you got to come get your dog. we got to work. And uh, one day the police chief was over visiting me because he comes and does the show with me occasionally. And um, I was standing in the lobby and I said, oh, there's the chief. And here comes our buddy, the Rottweiler. He comes trotting over to the chief like, oh, here's my new buddy. And the chief whips out the pepper spray. <laughs> oh, no. And takes the dog out. And I go out to see the chief. And I'm like, chief, what are you doing? I look at the dog and the dog's all watery-eyed, blinking and you know, stumbling around. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you doing, Chief? The dog's good. And he's like, oh, I don't know what his intentions were. I know he was advancing on me. <laughs> well, you know, uh, uh, cops and mailmen yeah. have more bad experiences with dogs. Oh, yeah. So oh, fuck you, dude. Look, I was a pizza driver for like a Oh, yeah, yeah, same thing. There. I've got a scar on my knee to this fucking day. All right? I mean, you, you know, cops, 
mailman. I don't want to hear it, dude. No one had it worse than the people. <laughs> well, my thing was, I went over to the dog to comfort him, and the chief's like, I would wash my hands thoroughly before after I pet that dog. And I'm like, okay, so I go in the bathroom, I wash my hands, we go back on the air, we're talking, and at one point during the discussion, I kind of pinched my fingers under my eyes, and a couple seconds later, I'm like, holy shit, my eyes are on fire, what's going on here? (laughs) Yeah, 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 when they say pepper spray, that's literal. You You want to know what? Consider yourself lucky that the first thing you didn't do is go take a piss. (laughs) <laughs> I used to, when I used to work at a Mexican place we had these um, ancho peppers that we'd make an enchilada sauce out of uh-huh. and they basically look, we'd get them dried they looked just like giant raisins and when you broke them open they didn't smell hot they smelled like a sweet raisin and they had this sticky you know stuff in the middle of them and that would build up on your hands your hands would turn brown from this stuff just like and it was pure heat and we would have we would have these guys, you know, it'd be their their first day at work, and they'd have to take the seeds out of these peppers, and we're like, now, whatever you do, put your gloves on when you handle these things. So they'd have the gloves on, and they it'd be really awkward to do with gloves on. It's really hard to do with gloves on, but so they'd take their gloves off, and they'd be just like, I'm just gonna wash my hands, and then you're like, you better wash your hands like eight times, warning you, warning, you, and invariably they'll go off and go to the bathroom come back and about five minutes later you'll see them like with their hand on the sink uh, around, sweat coming down <laughs> what happened i went to the bathroom huh? <laughs> oh, oh. well in the plus column though at least now they know what it's like to have the clap yeah oh only for about a half hour too so it's a, it's a nice little warning but yeah they always had their gloves on after that though Ugh. Well, let's, uh, I'll tell you what, it's starting to get late. Let's do one more, because I'm, I'm about to drop off here. Okay. And that is, I've got to find the page here, because I love this story. Oh, yes, here it is, page 169. The toothbrush story. And this one I heard is true before I knew it was a... This is one of those that I'd heard was true. Now, this is one... This is one that I think started out as a story. And then... And, and then some... And people heard about it. And then there was somebody evil enough to make it into reality. Because this was one I heard... This was one I was heard, hearing in the 80s. And... Yeah, in the, the yeah, early, mid-80s. But then... I think it was like the late 90s. I remember reading a news story about it with pictures. <laughs> it might have been even later than that. It might have been like in the early days of the internet, but there were pictures. Now, it could have been somebody just decided to make it that much more elaborate. They're making a photo montage. Yeah, but it was... It was, it was a, you know, they were, they were in, a, in like Brazil or something in their hotel room. And came back in their hotel, it had all been rifled through and stuff, and then, yeah. But at least they left the toothbrushes. Yeah. And the camera. The only two things left. <laughs> so why not? Let's get some photos of me with my toothbrushes that were left behind and the camera. We develop the film when we get back from the trip. And there are the thieves 
with those toothbrushes implanted firmly in their rectums. Because that's what you do when you're breaking into... Yeah, well, yeah, you're in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, hey, hey, one of them stops and is just like, dude, we got to get out of here. Dude, there's always time for the toothbrush. Quick, take a picture. Yeah, okay, you first... Wait, wait, who's going first? <laughs> <laughs> Those guys are those guys are really good buddies, you know. The, yes. I don't know how many of my friends that I I would want to want to want to say that I've reached that friendship. Yeah, with that's uh, yeah. You know, I, I can't think of a single person on this planet I would say, "Here, help me stick this in my ass." Too. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds more like a fraternity hazing. Although it is the sort of breaking and entering too, also. Yes, it is. Oh, <laughs> As Magnus struggles to keep control of the program. I lost control of the program. <laughs> now, what would have been even better is if they died of fluoride poisoning. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that's quickest, easiest way, right? It's like those people that get the uh, the alcohol enemas. Well, you know, all the uh, all the toothpaste tubes now, uh, after that, have to say not to be used. <laughs> the lawyers, the lawyers go to court and demand that this get put on the tubes. And see, I want to say that and see how many of the listeners go and like go to the bathroom, and, like check their toothpaste. Yeah, th- well, <laughs> you know what I was tomorrow morning, next time somebody goes and uses their toothbrush, they're going to sniff it first. <laughs> That's a public service. Traveling abroad? Sniff your toothbrush. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Timmy Turd. Here's advice for you. <laughs> the ad campaign has a clever animated mascot, I see. It's so cute. Always sniff your toothbrush and always check to see what kind of thermometer that is before you put it in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> You're a very deviant, sick, and twisted individual. Well, I guess this is a good way to wind down the big book report. I mean, I got to tell you, in a thousand years, I never would have thought it would come to this. Well, we've so, been sort of keep it it, it, it. it sort of hits a certain level with two people. You throw in a third, and that's that's it. Just gets, no. Yeah, it's like a Judd Apatow movie after a certain. <laughs> so, all the same, uh, Scott, would you like tell everybody less marijuana? <laughs> well, yeah. Well, actually, maybe not. Not in your case, but <laughs> well, on this particular night, yeah, it's it's we're we're, we're on the street. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Uh, Scott, why don't you tell everyone where it is they can find you? Uh, just go out to your window and yell for me. I'll be there. Um, <laughs> I'm on Twitter, Rifen, R-Y-F-U-N, at uh, My Star Wars Story. Uh, I tweet about Star Warsy things there. And, of course, that's the podcast as well. And at Dinner for Geeks, Dinner, the number four, Geeks. And uh, that's where you can find us as well. I would say do something like go to dinnerforgeeks.com, but where does that go? If you go to dinnerforgeeks.com, you'll end up at twotruefreaks.com. Wow, the magic of the internet. Yes. You do that? Type it in there, that's where you go. Hmm. Well, I just want to thank you for joining in on this long, weird, crazy, this is... borderline actionable discussion. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
this has been a this has been a dream fulfilled for me. Don't worry. Ever since that first episode came out, I was just like, oh God, why was I not on that show? And now we know why I wasn't on that show. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. You ought to come on to the Sovereign Citizen episode. That's going to be a fun one. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah, that's coming at some point, yeah. And also, of course, want to uh, just, again, thank Chris for making this episode specifically, but also the series in general. I suppose the most charitable way would, would to describe it would be more varied than <laughs> it would be well. Maybe... <laughs> shading here and there, a little different. <laughs> and to be fair, that is why that is why I recruited you in the first place. So, anyway, good show, good times, and good people. Thanks a lot, guys, for for joining in. And that, guys, is the end of the big book report, at least for right now. But you never know; we may come back to some stories and things that we've overlooked. You know, who's to say that? Chris and I won't get extremely desperate for show ideas, but at least in the meantime, that is pretty much it for me this week, and as it happens, also it for Scott and Chris. So, bye everybody, <laughs> I will see you next week to talk about some more Smallville. presents. We hope that it will be unlike anything else on this earth. Golf courses, campgrounds, stores, hotels. Earning my ears. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for everyone who participates. We're ready to go right now. Earning My Ears, a Walt Disney World-centric podcast, is available monthly at twotruefreaks.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about 
the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy. <laughs>